Hi, I'm Mark Bowden, and I, I wrote the book Black Hawk Down. And I'm Ken Nolan, the screenwriter of Black Hawk Down. I got interested in this story in um, 1993 when it happened, when I saw the images of dead American soldiers being dragged through the streets of Somalia. And I think, like most people, that really shocked me and angered me, and it made me interested to know how that happened. And when I read the initial accounts of the battle, I remember reading about one phase of this battle where 99 American soldiers were trapped and surrounded by thousands of heavily armed Somalis and that they had fought for about 15 to 18 hours to survive. And I can just remember thinking that if I could find the men who went through that ordeal and get them to tell me about it and I could write a story through their own eyes, that that would just make an, an amazing and, and powerful story. So that, that really was the origins of this project. I came onto this project in 1998. Uh, Mark had written a draft of the screenplay, and they decided they needed a, quote, professional screenwriter, which I never thought I was. But I had never had a movie made, and I had one of these meetings, which usually amounts to nothing. And uh, a guy named Todd Garner at Disney said, well, I do have this book called Black Hawk Down. I didn't know what a Black Hawk was or what Black Hawk Down, the three words just didn't go together. And I said, well, what's that? And he says, remember on TV when those guys, the American soldier got dragged through the streets with a rope around his leg? And I said... Yeah, I do remember that. He said, well, this is what it's about. So I took the book home and put it next to my bed and didn't read it till a few days later. But within 10 pages, I knew it was something incredibly special and knew I had to be involved. So I called up Jerry Brockheimer's people and said, I'll do anything. I'll wash Jerry's car. What do I have to do to get this job? Um, and somehow I weaseled my way into the job and worked on it for two years. And we went back and forth on the... Uh, intro here, this information, because it's a lot of information to convey in a short period of time, and I was worried that the audience would get really bored and it would seem tedious, but no one has complained about it at all, and I think finally um, Mark wrote this intro. Yeah, I wrote it, and every day Ridley would read it and ask me to change one word or <laughs> another word. I wanted to write uh, 300,000 people starved, and they insisted that it be 300,000 people died of starvation. Mm -hmm. They had an original shot where the Black Hawk actually came through this, the, the view of this window, which is really cool, and there was these letters that said, Black Hawk Down. But this is also quite powerful. Whenever the camera moves up high in this movie, to me, because I've been to Mogadishu, it really is the only time that the film doesn't look like it could be in Somalia, because the images of the city that you see in the background are far more built up and intact than anything you would actually see in Somalia. But once you get down at street level, it's really amazing how mm -hmm. much Morocco, which is where they filmed it, looks like Mogadishu. Ridley was told he'd never be able to shoot this sequence and these scenes were expendable and not part of the plot. And he said, well, let's get second unit to do it. <laughs> and he sort of slipped it in and there was like a secret script that had these scenes in it. So uh, second unit filmed it, and he saw the dailies, the rushes, as he calls them, and he thought it looked great. I don't know if he ever came in to do... I think he finally came in to direct some of these himself. Uh, that shot where you saw all the people running up was just a few people, and then he digitally put in about, uh, you know, twice as many people running up to the food center. 
I think it's an important scene because it sets up that our guys were there for a very uh, beneficial reason initially, which was, and throughout the whole. Yeah, it's great because it captures the frustration of the American soldiers who had real limits placed on what they could do. And when they were witnessing these scenes of brutality and injustice uh, and were unable to intervene, it made them, uh, it motivated them. You know, they wanted to get involved. And on a purely script writing level, it was a chance to introduce our main character, Matt Eversman, and to show his point of view. This guy's name is Roz. He's an English actor. Uh, he was supposed to do a TV show, and he was going to get this television show in England. And uh, Ridley called his house one day, and his wife says, uh, Honey, it's Ridley Scott. And Ridley said, Roz, I think you're going to have a great time if you come out here to Morocco, film this, be the bad guy. And Roz says, Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> This is Eric Bana, an Australian actor who uh, was in a movie called Chopper. And when we were developing the script, uh, Mike Stenson and Chad Oman, who worked for Jerry Bruckheimer, said, we got this Australian guy who's going to be the next Russell Crowe. He did this movie called Chopper. And they showed me the movie, and it was just this fucking insane part. I mean, it was like Taxi Driver. And he was about 50 pounds heavier, but he got completely in shape for the movie. You might remember this guy from Raiders Lost Ark, this, who plays Otto. I think that's him. Yeah. This is a, the uh, Bakara market, which in Mogadishu is a arms market. And it, it may seem bizarre, but they really do have uh, every kind of weapon for sale there. This actually happened in Mogadishu. Uh, this is how they arrested Osman Otto, who was like the top uh, financier for Mohammed Farah Aidid's uh, military organization. And they took him down in a convoy of vehicles, pretty much uh, as it's depicted here. This is another scene that Ridley was told, can't afford it, you're not going to be able to do it, we're at the end of our budget. And somehow he weasels it into the movie because he's Ridley Scott, and he thinks it's important, and it turns out to be important, so Ridley does what Ridley does. It's mysterious. <laughs> Now, this was a scene, as I remember it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, but mm -hmm. in the draft that I wrote of the screenplay, I had this scene uh, where Garrison meets with uh, Otto because in real life, this never happened. Otto was captured, and he was no doubt interrogated, but to my knowledge, Garrison, who was the commander of the task force, never actually sat down and talked to him. But it was an opportunity to present a Somali character and sort of present the Somali take on the American effort there. Right. As I remember, these scenes were some of the most difficult to write because you're writing very sophisticated political jousting back and forth between two guys who have valid points of view on both sides. So neither one of them can be wrong, and we can't make the general look like a buffoon, and Atto can't win the argument, yet he can't lose. So we went back and forth and back and forth, and it went through... So many permutations I can't even remember. And finally, you just can't go through another permutation. It's time to film it. So you get what you get, and it turns out to be great anyway, luckily. I love the light in this shot, the way, it, the way it's composed. Mm -hmm. It's like a painting. Yeah, that's Ridley's thing as he paints on the screen. Sam Shepard showed up, and he was just, he's so laconic, if that's the right word, correct me yeah, if I'm wrong. Yeah, laconic is a good word. It's, he's not even acting, he's just... You're just sitting there being a regular guy. 
He's uh, not that far off, Vic Garrison himself. Right. <laughs> this scene did sort of happen, according to, uh, to uh, Colonel Tom Matthews, was the Garrison character sort of talking to Atto. And we had a technical, two technical advisors, Tom Matthews and Colonel Lee Van Arsdale, who would give us invaluable information. So Tom told us all about the raid, and Lee told us about the raid. So everything you see in this movie, even the things that seem so incredible as to be a movie-manufactured piece of fiction, are true. Although it may have happened to another character or another group of characters. This is civil war. This is our war. Not yours. 300,000 dead and counting. That's not a war, Mr. Ito. That's genocide. Now you enjoy that tea. When I first started the project, I wrote these three treatments that were 60 pages long, each single-spaced. And I wanted this movie to be different and special, and I was going to create a new genre and uh, smash the canon of <laughs> movie-making or whatever by having a truly ensemble film. I wanted to start the movie coming out of the black maw of a rotor turbo rotor blade of a Black Hawk and then circling around the Black Hawk to the faces of the soldiers, slowly coming into the soldier's face and then cutting back into flashback to that morning to what they were doing to tell you a little bit about the soldiers. But uh, Jerry stressed that you've got to get to know the characters first, at least for a little while, or else no one's going to care. And I thought, ah, we're making an ensemble movie. This is a different movie. And uh, finally, going back and forth in these introduction scenes, I realized, oh, I'm not a genius, and they're right, and it works. The pilot of Super 6-1, which turns out to be the first helicopter that crashes in the battle, flown by uh, the character played here by Jeremy Piven, is, uh, was nicknamed Elvis, and uh, that's why the Elvis, I presume, the inspiration for the Elvis music here. Yeah. Limo is a word, Duran. I don't want to hear about it. Every actor in this movie, I think, delivers a A-plus performance, and it's one of the most incredible casts I've seen in a movie, ensemble cast. Uh, I mean, I recognized every face when they came, because I'm a dork about that. I know the guy who played the pizza delivery guy in, you know, American Pie 2 or whatever. But I have a feeling this movie will be seen, and I've heard this from other people, as like the outsiders of... 2000, like every actor from this movie will go on to do great things. You know, Outsiders had Milo Estevez and Tom Cruise and, you know, C. Thomas Howell and on and on and on. This will be one of those movies, I hope. This is a very nice way of getting across the idea that so many of these rangers were just uh, 18, 19 years old. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that really attracted me when I read the book. I mean, I read so much stuff as a screenwriter trying to get a movie made. I go through tons of material, and usually you know within the first couple of pages whether it's good or bad. And I knew Mark's book was different, but it also hit me on this other level where I thought, you know what, I was about 23 years old in 1993 or 24. I was the age of some, most of these soldiers. What is it about these guys that made them not run away and and scream and cry and, and pee their pants like I would have done. Why were they, what, what's special about these guys that 
They didn't do that. They stayed and fought and survived when they should have, by all rights, been wiped out. I mean, a million Somalis against 100, over 100 Rangers, they should have been all killed. This character, uh, played by Eric Bana, who's called Hoot in the movie, is actually based on a real character named John Mesa Hunis, who's, uh, I mean, all of the Delta Force guys are legendary in the elite units of the Army, but within Delta Force, Mace is a legendary figure. He's just mm -hmm. an amazingly uh, courageous man, and he did used to go off into the city by himself on these reconnaissance missions, which, given the dangers of that uh, vicinity, is, you know, pretty startling. The Delta nicknamed him the Mutant Strain because he was just incredible. Even the Deltas gave him his uh, props, as the kids say these days. Check your weapons. Don Eversman. Zart. Yeah. Private first class Blackbird. When I first saw this movie, I thought, come on, come on, get to the battle. Let's go, let's go. But, uh, as this movie slowly builds and builds, it starts to make your stomach upset, and then you're thinking, oh, I'm not so sure I want to get into the battle. <laughs> well, I think the audience comes to the movie knowing that it's going to be mm -hmm. a huge battle, so right. it adds a kind of suspense to these scenes. This scene with the boards, the first time I met uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, he said, how do you envision the opening scene of this movie? And I told him how the Delta Force guys used to hunt boar, from the helicopters as target practice. And he told me, no way that's getting in the movie. He said, that's, uh, right. everybody will hate these guys if we show that. Well, it made it. And uh, Ridley said to Mike Stenson, the executive producer, Mike said, I don't think we can show our guys killing boars and it's gonna make them look unsympathetic. And Ridley said, not the way I shoot it, mate. <laughs> uh, this was the first day of shooting and uh, I came out with a the, the draft of the script that we'd been working on for 10 days creating a completely new script from scratch. And I had been in Ridley's office for eight, nine hours at a stretch, and he was smoking his Monte Cristo number twos, and I was getting green to the gills and sick. So I drive out here. It's about five in the afternoon right now, and uh, I come up, and I've never even seen a movie set before, you know, and this is my... I've been paid as a screenwriter for like six years before this, but never even gone to the movie set. And there's a hundred trucks and all these lights and all these actors I recognize, and I my mind was completely blown, and I hand Ridley the script, and... Uh, he says, this isn't your first movie set, is it, mate? And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, fuck me. That's hilarious, you know? Let's get a picture. Uh, <laughs> the way Ridley shoots is he will set up eight cameras. So this is all one take, all these little cuts right here. It's like close-up on William Fickner, close-up on Jason Isaacs, uh, you know, a shot of the, line, the food line, a shot of Tom Sizemore. And then he just, he, he says, this way I'm in charge in the editing room. So you film all this stuff, and then you cut it together. I mean, it's, it's not normal, I don't think. Completely blew my mind. <laughs> the real Matt Eversman, who Josh uh, plays in the movie, is, is a very uh, sort of quiet, thoughtful guy. He was a few years older than most of the Rangers and had had a few years of college, and he was the kind of guy who, he was very sincere and earnest. And uh, I remember Ken asked me one time to, to describe him. And I said, he's the kind of guy who can be very sincere with a group of 18, 19, 20-year-old guys. And, they'll, and they won't just laugh him off. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, would, they would accept that in him. They, 
because they respected him. He could be sincere and, and people wouldn't make fun of him. Right. He would, and that's an odd thing for me because I don't really know anyone like that, you know, and my friends would make fun of me if I try to say things like that. This is Richard Tyson. Uh, you might remember him from 3 O'Clock High. And, um, he got the most improved Ranger Award for getting in shape over in Morocco the four months, five months we were there. He dropped like, not that he was heavy, but he dropped like 25 pounds and just turned into a monster. Uh, and when Ridley saw that he had been cast, he, he said, uh, who's this, this character Bush? He looks scary, mate. We've got to make some, some, some new scenes for Bush. <laughs> so, uh, so we made up all these new scenes for Richard. But they were all true, of course. We didn't make them up. I will make you believe, you understand? <laughs> this character, Dominic Pilla, was one of the real favorites of the uh, ranger uh, group, the ranger company over there. And he did play Captain Steel in skits, poking fun at him. So this isn't just screenwriting. This no. is uh, based on reality. Now, Jason Isaacs, who's playing Captain Steel, is a British actor. He's very intelligent, tenacious, and has great ideas. But, you know, he's... Jason speaks like this, and he's playing Captain Steel. So it was just <laughs> amazing to watch him come over and say, Oh, good morning, Ken. How are you doing? And then he'd turn into Captain Steel immediately. And it was, it was like a total, like that's what a professional actor is. This guy became Captain Steel, and he was actually scary to be around. Like, And Jason's not really physically threatening, but he was when he turned into Captain Steel. His clan was the dead guy's clan, a hundred camels. A hundred camels. Camels. I wouldn't pay one camel. Must be a lot of the guy who just said that line, uh, the skinny, you know, 100 camels, um, that's Yoan Griffith right there, a uh, Scottish actor who, um, his agent got the new script that we had written, and he said, there's no dialogue for my person anymore. I'm pulling him from my actor. I'm pulling him out of the movie. And Ridley and Mike and Jerry and I were all in the room. We said, well, let's, you know, we could use an actor leaving. There's so many. Uh, and I said, well, maybe we should check out who he is first. And we looked up on the Internet Movie Database and, printed out his picture and Ridley says, oh, fuck, this guy's a great actor. He was, he was fucking Horatio Hornblower. Eh? So uh, he said, we got to come up with some scenes for him. So this was one of the scenes we wrote so Yon would stay in the movie. I think he's great. Gabe Cassius, the African-American actor, plays uh, one of the only two, I think, African-Americans in the Right, he ranger. plays, he he plays, plays Kurth. Mike Kurth, yeah. There was one other uh, black ranger named Dave Wilson who who was injured very early on in the battle mm -hmm. and didn't figure too much in the fight. This They, they actually did watch this movie over there in uh, Mogadishu. Really? Yeah. That's great. Now, I didn't understand where Ridley was going with this scene, but when I see it all cut together, I realize, okay, you've got... You know, it's nice, we're meeting the characters, we're getting to know their point of view because it's important. And maybe it's a little too, you know, funny, and then suddenly it's serious. You know, this guy has an epileptic seizure, and it's it's foreshadowing of the violence to come. And it really, when I saw it first cut together, I went, okay, I get it, that's why it's there. But some of the stuff, I, I was just writing, he said, you know, just, he has an epileptic seizure at the end, and just write it, and I go, okay... This shot right there is actually uh, dusk because uh, the, the, they filmed the movie in Morocco and you're looking at the Atlantic Ocean, so that's the sun setting. But of course, the setting of the film is in Somalia, so hmm. the sun would be rising over the Indian Ocean. Very so they clever. shot this at dusk and 
and pretended it was dawn. Wow. I didn't know that. Well, we'll be fine. Here's Ridley's eight-camera setup again. I mean, all this is all in one take. Close-ups. So, well, he has to turn the cameras around at some point, but... But it, it was really remarkable to watch and learn. I just soaked up everything like a sponge, you know, and he let me hang around in the video village all day long. I mean, more than I even wanted to. Because it takes forever to set up eight cameras. Slavomir, the uh, DP, worked incredibly hard, too. And eventually, you know, every once in a while, Ridley would say, uh, Slav, it's pretty wide. Let's move in tighter. Or, Danny, move your camera three inches to the left. There you go. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, Ridley had already shot the movie in his head. It was just a, the tedium of getting it down on celluloid that he had to go through. Now, this character uh, represents one of the Somalis who was hired by the U.S. force to spy, basically, in the city. They had created, in fairly short order, a uh, spy network. And one of the problems was that these guys were not entirely trustworthy, and they were also really terrified of the people that they were supposed to be spying upon, with good reason. The long-anticipated meeting of the Deed's senior cabinet may take place today at 1,500 hours. They say may this is Sam's first day of shooting, Sam Shepard. I thought, all right, I'm going to go to the set and watch a crusty vet do his thing. And he was exhausted from the flight. They threw him right into the mix. These guys had all been together for three months, knew each other so well, because the only thing there was to do in the Hilton was hang out, drink, and kind of go to three restaurants, you know, in Morocco. And that was about it. So everyone was bored out of their mind. Everyone became really good friends. So Sam gets in here, and he's got all this complex jargon to spout out, and he just had a terrible time of it. And went to lunch with him, and he's like, I don't know what happened, man. It was, you know, I just I couldn't remember that stuff. And and he came back and nailed it and turned out perfect. A lot has been added to the scene. This mm -hmm. is one of the scenes that uh, when the movie was really basically completely shot and almost finished being edited, Ridley decided he need to, needed to expand on the scene so that the audience would have a better idea of exactly what was going to happen in the mission, sort of an, uh, an opportunity to explain. So they had to bring Sam back to shoot the little bits of this scene uh, in the studio, and they mm -hmm. set up the lighting and everything to make it look just right. But Sam himself had gained a little bit of weight, and his hair is a little bit longer. So if you look <laughs> really closely, you can see uh, that that this is Sam being shot in two different times and places. Yeah, and they did some other scenes and reshoots, and incredibly, it just never ended. I was I was writing all the way through filming. Then I thought, okay, it's over. And then I get a call, and it's like I got to come into Jerry's office and talk to Ridley, and Ridley comes in with a cigar and says, get your notepad out, mate. It's time to write. So we had, we had to write these reshoot scenes to uh, just to orient the audience. It was very important to orient the audience on what are they doing? What exactly is the objective? Right. And actually, by having to do that, by having to give these opportunities to explain, this departs somewhat from the way this was really done. In fact, yeah. these Delta Force and Night Stalker pilots were allowed to plan their own mission. So in reality... This would have been a group, basically the guys on one side of the table would have all been, been doing all the talking and all the planning, and the mm -hmm. commanding officers would just be sitting there supervising and sort of giving their nod at the appropriate moment. Right, and it's one of the things that we thought, yes, the truth the truth works, but it may not work for an audience. We've got to have the general involved, and we cannot have it be a completely ensemble cast. You know, if we, So the reasons for changing it from the book... To what you see in the movie, people say, why didn't they just film the book? 
It's because you've got, you have to do some things for the audience to help them. It's an incredibly complicated story. Uh, there's so many stories going on at any given time. And a movie unfolds so much more mm-hmm. quickly. You know, in the book, you can read at your own pace. If, if you get lost, you can double back and reread the page you just <laughs> left right. behind. So you have a better shot at tracking. But in a movie, if you get lost for a, for even a few seconds, you can stay lost. And once the audience is lost, they just, as Jerry says, they're reaching for their popcorn, you know. And it's true. I mean, Jerry's got these little sayings that are so true that it's like, you're going to lose the audience. And if you do, people are going to get hostile and they're not going to like your movie. And I knew I was writing a, a quote, important movie. And I tried not to let that get in my head too much. But I also knew that it was a piece of entertainment. I wanted it be, to be very entertaining and gripping. Uh, so that's why you've got to make changes sometimes. This introduction scene was very important because it establishes Jamie Smith, played by Charlie Hoffheimer. Charlie wasn't even supposed to be in the movie. Another guy had this part, but he tore his groin muscle in boot camp where all the actors went, and Charlie got a phone call, kind of like I did, that said, get your stuff, you got four days to get to Morocco, you're playing Jamie Smith. And he turned out to be fantastic, I think, just haunting in the death scene. I assume you've all seen the movie, so I'm going to talk about things that are going to happen. Actually, Jamie Smith is one of the reasons and one of the ways that I got launched on writing the book, Black Hawk Down. His death in this battle is, uh, you know, one of the most poignant episodes. And um, I met his father uh, back in 1996 before I had started working on this story in earnest. And, and his father, Jim Smith, is a ranger who had fought in Vietnam and lost his leg in Vietnam. And, and then, of course, he lost his 18-year-old son in Mogadishu. I remember asking Jim how much he knew about how his son had died, and he told me that he knew very little. Uh, and I, so I actually told him that day that I was going to make an effort to try and find out what happened in Mogadishu on that day. And Jim subsequently invited me to a little ceremony where they were dedicating a building to the memory of his son Jamie. And at this ceremony showed up about a dozen of uh, the young rangers who had fought with Jamie in this battle. And that was really the the opportunity I had to get my foot in the door reporting this story. I met those young men, and they all agreed to tell me their stories. This is the first scene, to my knowledge, that was ever shot. That's Matthew Marsden, British actor, and, of course, Ewan McGregor, Scottish actor, both playing Americans. And <laughs> Matthew said he was slightly terrified because it was the very first scene, and he didn't know if his American accent was any good. And... Ridley said, your American accent's spot on, mate. How would he know? Oh, really? (laughs) What did you say, mate? I'm right here. (laughs) When he hears this, he's going to kill me. (laughs) As I recall, this is one of the first scenes that Josh had to shoot as well. And uh, he was a little nervous, and I felt my heart went out to him because he's sitting there in front of all these other actors who are thinking, how come I'm not Josh Hartnett, you know? Well, it's perfect for this scene, though, because he's playing uh, a guy who's being put in charge and thrust out in front of everyone for the first time. Exactly. So if he was, in fact, nervous, it plays really well into the character at this point. I think so. And uh, Josh is a very down-to-earth guy who I think he's sort of bewildered by his upcoming stardom, and uh, that's why he's a great guy. And I really like him. He hadn't really, you know, <laughs> he hadn't really become a big star when he shot this movie because Pearl Harbor Pearl was just out, yeah, coming yeah. out. And so it was all, he knew that it was going to happen, but it hadn't quite happened yet. This is Faith No More on the soundtrack. Uh, I think it's great right here. It just gets you going. And Pietro 
uh, Scalia, his editing team, would come up with all these songs as far as I know and put them on the soundtrack and try different ones. And um, There's Tom Hardy, he's English as well. There's a very wide range of of ethnicities, I don't know what you would say, of where people are from, is there a word for that? Uh, with some Americans, some Brits. This scene captures, you know, two of the two or three of the really critical mistakes that these uh, rangers made going out on this mission. They mm-hmm. they'd gotten so cocky that it was an afternoon mission, and they thought it would only last for about an hour, an hour and a half, and so there was no need. They thought to bring their night vision devices. They didn't bring a lot of water. Some of them, in order to be able to move more quickly, took the uh, metal plates out of their body armor, all of which proved to be really serious mistakes. Yeah. In our scripts that we worked on, we had a lot more division between Delta and Ranger, and I really harped on that for a while. Like, I had scenes where Deltas and Rangers didn't get along, and in the end result, it's very subtle. Ridley always goes for subtlety, and he didn't like things being hit on the head, scenes going clunk. Uh, so now you just get a little bit of that, that they look over and see the Delta guy putting the blood type on his boot. Which they do. Which they, absolutely true. These guys carried around these things, death letters. And um, another of our technical advisors, John Collette, who was there, showed me his. It was unopened, and it said, to be open in case I die, and it just kind of sent a chill down my spine. So they had written things like, you know, dear mom or whatever, don't worry about me, I'm fine, and I did my duty. It was very poignant to... Ugh, I feel like they had written those letters. And some of those letters were this opened. Is Orlando Bloom. You mm-hmm. might recognize him from Lord, Lord of the Rings. Orlando was, you know, all these guys were in Morocco for five months. They were like, oh, man, we've been here so long. Orlando had been in New Zealand for 18 months on Lord of the Rings. He was like, this is a doddle. <laughs> There's no problem. Now, one of the things that I think was most interesting to me when I wrote the book was that it illustrated how... Uh, army units, these special operations units, conduct raids and missions using cameras overhead uh, that you know broadcast images back to the Joint Operating Center, so that the generals can actually watch what's happening on the ground from a distance. Just the procedures, you know, that they follow and the technology that they have, I think, is is new, fascinating. Now, there's an indication you see in the backdrop there when they go up high, how relatively modern and built up. Morocco looks in that. Right. It's not really true to... We filmed it in uh, the capital city of Rabat and the sister city, Saleh, which were third world, but Mark says you haven't seen third world. No, definitely second world. This is the only moment we cut away from Somalia, and the guys there did have opportunities to make satellite phone calls home, and, you know, as was often the case, the, you know, time zones being what they were, they would end up getting the answering machine. Randy Shugart calling home, Gary Gordon looking on. These phone calls were actually made by people home that day. And it's This is uh, Janina's... Ridley's longtime girlfriend, Janina. Yeah. <laughs> Ten years, 11 years. She's in all of his movies in cameo parts. She says, I'm in all of Ridley's movies. She's Maximus's wife in back Gladiator. in Spain in Gladiator. Well, this is one of the scenes I wrote over and over and over again. It's a tough thing to write because these guys probably wouldn't have talked, but we had to create this dynamic, we felt, between the young soldier and the crusty vet who had been to, you know, Panama and who had been all over the world, been there, done that, and was sort of hollowed out, not even sure why he was doing it, except that he's really good at it now. I love that that, that exchange. It'd be an, almost a nice place to visit, and 
Mm-hmm. And Hoots says, almost. Yeah. Uh, I've adopted that as like part of my permanent vocabulary. <laughs> almost. <laughs> like, this is a really good dinner. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> but I think it was a opportunity to show a little bit of Eversman's progression. Now, it was um, a long time ago we thought, we've, we've got to have a main character. We can't just, it can't be totally ensemble. And I went, oh, man, it's, we have a chance here. Now, I've actually seen the, the real um, videotape of this battle. Mm-hmm. It was all videotaped from overhead. And this is almost spookily reminiscent because this scene in the movie is set up precisely the way mm-hmm. it was done in real life. It's top secret, right, this video? Or That's right. Super- it's classified. Mm-hmm. And every TV network is dying to get a hold of it. But uh, the Army hasn't released h- hardly any of it. I remember one of our technical advisors, I won't say who's, in case I get him into trouble, said, I've got the tape. And he came in and he showed it to us in Jerry's trailer. Mm-hmm. And he said, I must take the tape away. It was like, it was classified, you know, it was weird. But it was startling to see the real thing, you know, the way the helicopters crash. And... There are certain moments uh, in the movie, having seen the original videotape, that are just, as I said, spookily uh, reminiscent. It's yeah. just so dead on. That's about as excited as Sam gets, you know. But what's great is you never see him acting. He's like Spencer Tracy. Well, this is really important, you know, and it was in the in the real mission because if these guys launch them on the wrong house, it means that they undertake a very dangerous mission with, you know, the mm-hmm. possibility of people getting killed, including themselves. For no reason. And that happened before, didn't it? If there were a few wrong missions. Well, they sometimes went after the wrong spot because the intelligence was not on target. But on this day, the intelligence was right on. Right. In the background, you could see uh, Private Brad Thomas taking a hit of his uh, inhaler. And people say, oh, you know, a guy with asthma would never get in the Army. It's true. I I don't know if it was actually Brad Thomas. It wasn't Brad. It was was a guy named Steve Anderson. Yeah. And he got in because he had somehow managed to make it through most of ranger school Mm -hmm. without his inhaler and had a bad attack, and they felt so bad for him, they decided to let him stay. Like, ah, he's a nice guy. But it was just another little character quirk that we needed to put in to differentiate the guys, because once the battle starts, everyone's got their helmet on, they're dirty-faced, you don't know who's who. And it was it was just an opportunity to to show you these are real guys without being heavy handed without having the guy who has the, you know who rolls the dice all the time and says seven and the guy who has the lucky coin and you know or the rabbit's foot um, I hate that stuff because if you have friends you don't have friends who roll dice all the time and say seven you know and carry on a rabbit's foot we're we're all pretty this is, similar this is President Ford's son Stephen Ford mm-hmm. President Gerald Ford's son he's got great stories of suddenly being a teenager and being in the White House <laughs> and taking <laughs> taking the car out to Georgetown and pick, he says picking up a gal you know and saying uh, want to go back to my place <laughs> and uh, they drive up to the White House gates and she'd say what are you doing what are you doing we're going to get shot <laughs> and uh, the gates would open you know he said it was great <laughs> but He's a great guy. He's got a ranch in Northern California, and uh, you might remember him from when Harry met Sally. He played Sally's boyfriend in the airport initially, the you know Nordic blonde guy. Now we should talk about how difficult it was to get the helicopters for this movie. We almost didn't get real Blackhawks because of political situations in uh, Morocco. Right. King of Morocco said, "Wait a minute, you're bringing in what? Eight helicopters, twelve Humvees, a hundred real Rangers to do fast roping?" Right. 
No way. It's a military force easily stronger than anything in Morocco. <laughs> and Ridley, Ridley said to me one day, he's smoking a cigar, and he, he, he sees all these choppers, and he smiles because it was so... We thought we weren't going to get him, and we we're going to have to digitally put him in. It was just a nightmare. He sees the big force, and he goes, we could fucking take over this country, mate. <laughs> he says, it's we could. True. You know, you can't get Blackhawks anywhere else. I mean, they mm -hmm. only exist in the United States Army. And uh, uh, so it would have really looked pretty cheesy they kept saying well maybe we'll call it huey down yeah or, or uh, perhaps we'll make a movie ridley said and call it black hawk already down yeah. <laughs> and just pick up from the point where yeah. it's crashed i think that was that was arthur max one night the production does, art director uh who's a great ken and i got to ride on these little birds yep. right on the benches it was scary it was one of the coolest things i've ever done right out into the sunset yeah just on a day just like this it was awesome. This is what it looked like. And we turned around, and there was, like, all these Blackhawks behind us, and you just see the lights twinkling, and we're going over the ocean, and it was incredible. These guys, and they're just, they do this every day. It's like, yeah, it's my job. <laughs> and they were kind of screwing around with me, like, did we lose that guy on the bench yet? I don't know. This is uh, true. Actually, when I originally wrote the uh, first draft of the screenplay, the f opening scene was a, a kid like this uh, out in the countryside, you know, pulling out a cell phone to telephone in a warning. Just because you see these scenes in Africa all the time of remarkable disparity. You see something that looks very primitive and backward, and then there'll be this element like a cell phone that's, you know, so completely modern that it's just uh, yeah. it's one of the distinguishing features of the third world. I try to get all Mark stuff out of the movie, but I failed. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Beautiful right here. This is just such so spooky, these shots there. And the way the sound, you know, they go to this yeah. real high-tech, eerie yep. sound. Now at this point, your stomach should be churning and rumbling, and you're not sure you want to go in. And that's why you needed that long beginning of intro uh to get to this point. I think this is some classic stuff that'll be remembered for a long time. When they uh, turn now to go in, you see the shadows of the helicopters racing out across the city ahead of them. It's just a, just a beautiful shot. And hopefully we've established who everyone is, but you're not supposed to know them so well. You're just supposed to get a feeling of, oh, that's the guy who, you know, was playing chess, or there's the guy who was working out. And Ridley did, though, insist on writing the names of the soldiers' uh, helmets uh, on all the helmets. Yeah. And one of the technical advisors said, well, we wouldn't do that. Yeah. And Ridley said, what? It's going to be in, the, in this oh, movie, It's going to be in my movie, mate. <laughs> Technical advisors were great, but we had to tell them, okay, look, we're making a movie, and it was a, it was a battle back and forth. Not a battle, but a little push and pull. And then I think Colonel Lee and Colonel Tom finally understood, okay, you're making a movie. Let me help you then this way. And they were great. And the that's why it's just so amazing in these shots. Now, we had real rangers doing the fast roping, but these are the real actors on the benches. That's Eric Banner right there. Um... Coming up is Kim Coates, and then you'll see William Fickner. Um, Ridley wanted it to be this movie to be absolutely real. This was a documentary, as far as he was concerned. Um, 
And he was, you know, watching the actors on the side benches. And he says, you know, the bitch of it is, is they'll probably think this is all digital. That's all real right there. That's real, except the smoke is added in. When I wrote this book, one of the, of course, most important scenes in the book was this raid on the Target house, you know, coming out of these helicopters. And I spent a long time interviewing, you know, dozens of people and uh, trying to imagine in great detail what this was like. And on the set that day when they filmed this, it was the first time I actually got a chance to see what this kind of a raid, an aerial raid, is like. And it was so much faster and louder and more violent than mm -hmm. anything I had imagined. And, and, and even, you know, as hard as I tried to describe it accurately in the book, when those helicopters like here come swooping down over the street, even though I know this is just a movie, mm -hmm. and I knew they were going to come, so I was expecting it, it's shocking. Yeah. And it's so loud and impressive when you're on the ground. Now, uh... We had to wet down the streets because when these choppers come in, they just, they create a brownout. I mean, there's so much dust and dirt that, you know, we couldn't see any helicopters. So um, the crew had to wake up really early and wet the streets down, and then we film. That one shot where the little bird plants itself right on top of the camera, mm -hmm. I was with Ridley uh, when they shot it that day, and, and I remember he stood up and exchanged high fives with his <laughs> assistant director, <laughs> saying he just couldn't believe how perfectly that yeah. shot uh, happened. I remember he came in and he says, how about a camera in the ground right here, right here? And the, ca and the little bird comes in, swoop, right on it. And the dirt flew on it, and he goes, great. <laughs> Now, these are real rangers you see now uh, roping out of these helicopters. And they were so excited to be And some there. of them were guys who actually fought in the battle. Mm -hmm. So how surreal is that? I know. I mean, you fight in this terrible battle, and you lose some of your best friends, and yeah. you come home, and no one has a clue that it happened. And then, what, seven, eight years later, you're reenacting it yeah. for Hollywood. Bizarre. Uh, we couldn't let the actors do this. It's just too dangerous. I'm sure they wouldn't be as good at it either. Yeah. I mean, these guys were great. They just went zip right down the rope. Uh, these are the real streets. There's, there's Arthur Max did a lot of set dressing and some facades, but they were pretty dirty, and it was, there was a lot of poverty down in Saleh. Um, but the people were, were fairly nice and, you know, uh, even a bit nonplus that there was this giant movie being made. And they're like, oh yeah, well I got to cross the street now and go get my bread. When these guys, when Delta hit a house like this, uh, raided Target, the whole idea is to be. This is violence of action mm -hmm. uh, to to move so fast and so loud and and so and to be so overbearing that the sort of instinctive response of the people you're after is to just kind of curl up in fetal position. Yeah, actors talked about that. They went to boot camp. Like Brian Van Holt, the driver right there, said uh, he was in boot camp, and one of the sergeants were telling him, "Well, violence of action if if all else fails." And he says, "What's that?" And the guy just kicked this metal table over and threw a chair against the wall. He goes, violence of action! <laughs> and the actors went, holy shit, I get it. <laughs> Can I swear on this? Well, I did. <laughs> I assume if you're watching a rated R movie, you're a damned adult. Now, this is true. You know, the, this young ranger missed the rope and falls to the street. And this was the first thing that really went wrong in the battle. Uh, it was also, they had done six of these missions previously, and this injury was the most serious injury that any ranger had sustained all the while they were over there. So they kind of overreacted to it. They, uh, you know, they, they evacuated him immediately. You'll see in the film how they detach three vehicles and, and get him immediately out of the city, which makes perfect sense, except 
if it puts the rest of the force at risk, which is what it did, it slowed down their uh, the completion of their mission, and they ended up overstaying. And mm-hmm. and well, you'll see. <laughs> this shot is, uh, I think, so cool. It's um, digitally enhanced by a company called The Mill, which is also Ridley's company. Ridley owns, I think, half of Great Britain and uh, runs most of it. Now he's got several companies in a studio, and uh, the dust swirling around is is digitally enhanced. It looks beautiful. A lot of this dialogue is straight from Mark's book. I mean, anytime I had a problem, I called up Mark. I said, what do the guys do? What, what do they use? What do they say? And Mark would give me an answer during the two years of script development. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Ken. <laughs> In my do's and don'ts list for audio commentary, it says don't kiss each other's ass, and I just did. <laughs> That's Gregory Sporleader as Galantine. Uh, you can see Greg in about 18 movies. He's, he's one of Jeremy Piven's best friends. He's a hilarious guy. And, and he has a, cu- a couple of times in the movie where he has to say, I can't reach him, I can't reach him. So he would uh, repeat that line a lot, yeah. you know, as though practicing it. I can't reach him, I just can't reach him. <laughs> and so it was one of the only times when I watched the movie when I was taken out of the movie because mm. I could see Gregory uh, doing that for fun. <laughs> Made me laugh. I should say we had another technical advisor, Harry Humphreys, who's worked with Jerry on Armageddon and The Rock, and he was a Vietnam vet and Navy SEAL. Uh, and, and Greg could do this hilarious impersonation of uh, Harry, but yeah, Harry's the nicest guy, and he was there for every single shot, and he, you know, if actors had a question, how do I shoot, what do I do, Harry was there. The movie is, if you show it to a ranger, they will say, yep, that's it. That's what they did. They put him on a stretcher and ran. It isn't exactly the same personnel mm-hmm. in the movie because there were so many more actual soldiers in this fight than we're able to show in the film. So, you know, we have to create composites and we have characters doing things that other characters did. Exactly. But, uh, but what you're seeing is uh, pretty much exactly what happened. I should mention that this street, we found out later, I don't know if this is rumor, was a medical waste dump for years, and it was just filled with, you know, feces and urine, and they just dumped this stuff in the street, you know, there's, it's poor, and so these helicopters come in, and we've got a big crowd of dignitaries watching, like, big Ridley Scott movie, all the Moroccan dignitaries come out, and I was there, and Mark was there, and this dirt and stuff just flew in our face, and I think we all have some kind of, uh, it was called City Musa, the street of the neighborhood. We have a City Musa syndrome now. That's right. We'll all start dropping in about five years. I've already felt the effects. (laughs) When these guns fired, it was so loud. It was, your eyeballs would pop out of your head. I mean, that 50 caliber, you can actually feel the uh, air displacement from it if you're standing even... You know, 10 feet away, you can feel the air go whoosh around you. A 50 caliber round is about, I think, about three, four inches long and maybe um, almost an inch around. And it can punch a hole the size of a grapefruit through a cinder block. Jeez. So you can imagine what that does to the human body. Yeah. And I, I said to Lee Van Arsdale one day, the technical advisor, you know, why is the air displaced? You know, what, why, what's that feeling? It's like someone's punching me in the chest every time that goes off. And he goes, well... It's uh, it's called this and this, and he had this incredible explanation for it, scientific explanation. I just, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they knew everything, these guys. Now, a lot of this stuff that happens 
happened concurrently. I mean, and we couldn't flashback. It would just take people out of the movie if suddenly we flashback. That's uh, McGregor doing his actual stunt there, by the way. Um, a lot of the guys want to do the real thing. And anyway, we had to figure out, like, well, the helicopter crashed, but during that time, you know, the, the Humvee squad was driving back. Well, we can't show them at the same time. So we had to enhance... Here's another mill shot, by the way. Um, we had to figure out, well, what's the sequence? How do we move things around? How do we piece things together? It was like a jigsaw puzzle. Once you took one piece apart, though, everything would fall apart, and you had to go back over and over. And that's why it took two years. I remember we were shooting this, and a bunch of bullets, just the first take... Someone, it was literally someone above Josh just kind of dropping bullets out of a bucket. And they just turned the whole bucket on his head and they went clonk. And Ridley's watching on the monitor and he says, uh, uh, <clears throat> he gets on his walkie talkie. What the fuck was that? Ridley was very interested in what he calls the process, the process of military guys. How do they do this? Um, and Mark was saying they had so many missions before, and the most serious casualty was Blackburn in this mission. Should tell you the level of professionalism these guys have, that no one got hurt with helicopters. and Yeah, humbies. each one of these missions is just so dangerous. Yeah. Just the choreography of moving that many helicopters and men and orchestrating it. And, and when those helicopters come down to the ground in the movie, they, as you mentioned, Ken, they wetted down the streets so... Mm -hmm. You know, you, otherwise you would just get a total brownout with dust, which is in fact what they encountered when they roped down. They were just roping into a complete black cloud, a brown cloud. Yeah. Here's another one of Ridley's eight camera setups. And just when I was watching this, my jaw would drop. I said, oh, my God, we are making a giant movie. You know, this is incredible. I didn't really get it till I saw this footage being filmed. This, of course, is the first uh, ranger killed in the battle, Dominic Pella. He was the character who was doing the, the uh, impersonation of Captain Steele earlier on. And his death, of course, the death of any one of these guys would have been a real blow, but he was such a popular guy uh, amongst these men. It, was, it really hit them hard. And uh, Brian Van Holt, the actor playing Sergeant Struker, hung out with Sergeant Struker, and he, Struker said when he said he's Sergeant Pill is dead, sir. They said there was total silence on the command net for about 30 seconds because they hadn't had a KIA, I don't think, ever before, and it was shocking, you know. These guys were closer than brothers, so when this happened, it was devastating, but you have still have a job to do. I don't understand how they do it. This is Eric Bana on the 50. When I saw this footage, I thought, this guy is Clint Eastwood. Who <laughs> is this guy? This guy's amazing. Uh, Eric is so focused. You can see it in his eyeballs. I mean, and he's like that in real life. Just like, zap. He knows what he's doing. Roz is, is like, he's one of the sweetest guys in the world, and he plays this harsh Somali, you know. Well, he's got, you know, he talks like this, you know. He's, he's from <laughs> London, you know. He's a stage actor, film actor. He was, a, he was in Amistad. But he's scary. This is just an amazing sequence, crashing mm -hmm. this Blackhawk, and it looks <clears throat> just like the real thing. One thing I wanted, when I read from your book, that a guy was hanging out of the chopper. Someone saw this Dan, Dan Bush's Bush. feet hanging out of the chopper. I thought, we've got to have that. I wrote it in there and, and they really did it. filmed it. 
That's exactly what uh, Cliff said to Donovan Briley, his co-pilot. Mm. Some of this dialogue is just exactly what was said. That was one of my folk foci focuses, <laughs> foci, uh, when I was writing these 20 scripts was I wanted to stay true to Mark's book as much as possible. Like, let's fictionalize the least amount we can, only if we have to. Can't imagine how shocking this was to these guys. Oh. They, I mean, they're, it's intimidating enough to be on the ground in the middle of a city where everybody's shooting at you. But, you know, the fact that they had these helicopters in the air made them feel that they were safe because, you know, the helicopters were invulnerable. Nothing could hit them. And when this helicopter came down, as it is here very spectacularly, uh, it was just such a psychological blow to the Rangers and such a boost to the Somalis. Super 6-1 is down. We got a bird down in the city. Super 6-1 is on the deck now. Get an MH-6 on site, check for survival. When Ridley showed me a early cut of the movie, I said, we got to, you know, we've got to show Durant's face. Durant and Elvis were friends, so let's, is there a way to cut to him? And lo and behold, I see the movie and they did what I said. And I thought, I have influenced a $90 million Hollywood movie. How, how did this happen? Now, the uh, pilot of this little bird that goes down and lands in the movie, these, are, these pilots are from the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And uh, they're the same pilots who flew during the battle in some cases. Uh, and, the, and the guy who actually does this scene in the film uh, coming up where he you know, jumps out of the helicopter is the same guy, Keith Jones, who, who did this very heroic mm -hmm. thing in the battle. Yeah, he showed up, I remember, and they said, oh, it's Keith Jones. He was actually there. He was the pilot who came down and, and helped get Dan Bush on the chopper. And they said, hey, Keith, why don't you do what you did in Somalia? And he wasn't really too excited about doing it. I mean, it's very upsetting for these guys, but he was uh, a pro, and he did it, and he actually delivered his dialogue wonderfully. And I don't know how he felt about it, but... Uh, well, later, I'm sure he felt good about it. At the know. time, you know, when they're there and they're making it, they have no idea what this movie is going to look like. They can't envision what it's going to look like in the end, and they don't want to be in or a part of something that's going to make their unit look foolish or, yeah. or that they're going to be embarrassed about later on. So I think that really explains their reticence. Mm -hmm. Now, right here, you see Matt Eversman uh, leading his half of his chalk, uh, racing off toward the uh, crash site. Now, this is the precise moment in the film when Matt Eversman, the character in the movie, uh, ceases being Matt Eversman, the real character in real life, and becomes uh, the character Lieutenant Tom D. Tommaso in the actual battle. In the actual battle, Matt Eversman stayed back there at the corner and eventually rode out of this battle on the uh, convoy that winds its way through the streets. And Lieutenant Tom D. Tommaso led this group from the original site over to the downed Blackhawk. And the reason we did it this way is that we needed a character who would be present in all the major scenes of the film. And we, we couldn't introduce Matt Eversman as a main character and then basically take him out of the movie halfway through. So he becomes, you know, a composite of uh, Matt Eversman and Lieutenant Tom D. Tommaso. Now, up to this point in filming, we didn't have the Blackhawks yet, and this was about the third week of filming, and no huge action scenes had been filmed. I come to the set, and I know it's like action day, right? They're going to do some shooting. Um, 
I show up, I find Ridley in Video Village, which is where they have the monitors, playback monitors, and we've rented out someone's garage. This guy is wearing like an Obi-Wan Kenobi robe, and he's got a fridge with a, simply with a jar of pickles in it. And every once in a while he comes in and I look at him and he looks at me. Anyway, Ridley pointed at each monitor and the first explosion happened. She goes, boom! And I swear my eyes bugged out of my head. And he just kept pointing to each monitor like, this one, boom, this one, boom. Over here, boom. And I staggered out of this house after he said cut. I said, Ridley, we're making like the, the, the biggest documentary movie ever made. And he looks at me and goes, that's exactly what we're doing, mate. <laughs> like, it had been evident all along, and I was just slow on the uptake. <laughs> now, in the real battle, you know, they moved out in exactly this way. The idea was for uh, Rangers to take the lead, the Delta Force guys to be in the middle right behind them, and the Rangers then to come up in the rear. But as it's depicted here in the film and in the book, uh, when things started getting really hairy here on the streets, the younger rangers began to kind of uh, panic and hunker, hunker down, basically. And the Delta Force guys realized that they were going to all be killed if they didn't keep moving really fast, uh, which sets up the scene coming up of the sort of conflict between the character played by Bill Fickner, the uh, Delta Force uh, Sergeant Sanderson, and Captain Steele. Well, that was John Collette, a real ranger, who was in the battle doing that stunt. I came up to John that day and I said, John, are you sure about this? You know, you're going to have this wall explode over your head. And he goes, hey, man, it's going to be the bomb fucking diggity. They're going to give me 50 <laughs> extra bucks. And I said, John, you survived through Mogadishu and you're going to die here on a movie set. Good luck. Um, and it, I remember it was a really incredibly tense day because Ridley had to fly to L.A. for the Academy Awards. And our producer, Bronco Lustig, kept saying, we must go, we must go, we must get the plane, Ridley must go. And uh, the, the rocket wouldn't go down the string and wouldn't fire and wouldn't blow up the wall. And finally, they, Ridley was going to leave. And they did it in one take and it was perfect. And the wall exploded incredibly loud. And everyone burst into spontaneous applause. John came over with all this goop on his face to make sure he wouldn't get his face burned off. And Ridley said, great job. And he took off to the Academy Awards. We were really pulling for him to win uh, Best Director, but Steven Soderbergh won for Traffic, which I think Soderbergh is a genius, and Traffic was a great movie. But I really thought, you know, my two cents is really resurrected a genre and finished it all in one movie, and that's a pretty amazing achievement. Now, this is an amazing scene because it happens here in the film just about exactly as it happened in real life, because this is one of the scenes that was filmed from overhead. In fact, you're going to see a shot here shortly from overhead, this one right here, which is, it looks exactly like hmm. the real videotape. And this, this guy, Dan Bush, climbed out and sort of did battle with these people, keeping them off of the helicopter until the rescue force arrived, and he was ultimately uh, injured so badly. He's, he was rescued from the scene, but he died later on. Supposedly he had something like 11 magazines, I think. If, I don't know if I'm exaggerating. They found out he expended almost every single bullet. And these guys don't miss, you know. Whatever they... Usually they hit what they shoot at. So Dan Bush had really held off in a gigantic crowd. Now, in the script I wrote something like, Eversman and his men move down the tight, cramped streets, dodging bullets. 
Ridley turns it into this, you know, which is part of the genius of Ridley Scott, where it would make my head hurt. You know, I would think, how does this work? I thought, this is just one little paragraph I'm writing. What happens when we get to the big stuff? Yeah. People complain, you know, about the, uh, you know, graphic scenes like that one of the severed thumb, but really one of the distinctive uh, horrible features of combat are these gruesome sights that you otherwise would never see in real life unless you're maybe uh, an ambulance driver. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think if you're going to accurately capture the experience of combat, you're pretty much obliged to show some of the horrors that men are confronted with uh, in the middle of a fight. If we showed you what really happened, it would be, you couldn't watch it. it would, you know, women and children coming out with guns and people blowing up. And uh, if anything, we had to hold back. This is Tom Guyer. You might remember him from U571 in Tigerland. Great actor from New York City. Hilarious, does an amazing Christopher Walken. And uh, the monetary unit is called a Durham in Morocco, and we called him Tommy Two Durham because he had, we drank so much in the Hilton bar that he'd run out of Durham <laughs> and couldn't pay his hotel bill. This scene right here is one that I was uh, being interviewed in uh, France, and a French journalist flat out accused us of making this up. He said that. You know, obviously that scene where the soldier stumbles into the classroom and waves to the children is uh, is made up by a Hollywood screenwriter. And, and in fact, um, this really happened. This uh, The sergeant's name was Ed Urich. He's the character in the film. And and I told the journalist, I can give you his phone number if you like. You can, <laughs> you can check it out. And this too, this this kind of thing happened. This A lot of the Somalis fighting in the streets were really veterans of... Uh, civil war in that country, but many of them were inexperienced and they'd set up these ambushes where they'd set up on both sides of a target and start shooting. And if they missed the target or the target passed by, they'd end up shooting each other. Sort of rudimentary uh, ambush logic right. <laughs> that astonished the rangers that the, <laughs> that the men they were fighting hadn't mastered. Well, that. I remember in your book, you said that uh, they just didn't seem to care if they killed each other. And I wanted to get that kind of chaos into this movie where these guys realize they're fighting a force of people who just kind of don't care, you know? Mm -hmm. Not in an insensitive way, but who, do, who honestly are willing to die to kill these guys. Yeah, and people said, oh, this is fiction. Do they really have a radio? Yeah, they really did. Yeah, they really the guys who it. didn't go out on the original mission were all hanging around the radios. And of course, when things started going badly, Everybody was glued to the radio trying to figure out what was happening and either being really glad that they weren't out there in the middle mm. of it or wishing that they were out there to help. Probably a combination of both. All these things, uh, all the scenes you see, this was filmed at a Moroccan airbase uh, outside of Rabat. It took like 45 minutes to get to the set. And uh, Arthur Max just dressed the set up kind of in, in down and dirty, cheap, documentary-style way. And it just, everything looked real, you know. It, it, I don't, the actors, I think, could have an easier time getting into character or whatever mysterious things actors do. Because uh, it just, everything, it smelled real. It was hot and arid and dusty and you could smell sweat. And 
I mean, it got, the heat was very intense. I think Josh almost passed out one day. This is a pickup shot that we felt was so necessary for Eric to see the gristle and the blood and the horrors of what had happened, you know. And almost didn't get it, and finally second unit picked up that shot. This is another moment where I saw Tyson filming this, that scene you saw where he was fending off the crowd in sequence, and I thought, this is going to be an outrageously, ridiculously good movie. In the real battle, when this little bird came down to perform this uh, rescue, th th in this scene, it's a really wide street where they sat down, but in the real battle, he sat down in an alleyway that was so narrow that the rotors of the helicopter were actually uh, kicking up sparks on the walls on either side of the alleyway. They just These guys are such good pilots that they're mm -hmm. able to put down a, uh, a helicopter in that tight a space. And I'd always written the scene that way, and then when I saw the set, I said, oh, man, what are we going to do here? And we completely had to redo it, which sounds easy, like you just say, oh, giant street instead of alleyway, but you'd be surprised how many things it changes, you know. Dialogue. Uh, There's Keith Jones helping uh, that's Dan right. Bush. And Keith Jones has some dialogue coming up here with uh, Josh Hartnett. They exchange some information. He does it perfectly. This is pretty late in filming, too, when we got to this set. This is two and a half months in, I think. We finally got to this wide expanse. In the book, there's a one of the uh, characters in the book is a little Somali boy who lived in the house that the helicopter clipped on it its way down. Jones. Yeah, and uh, and the kid ran out and, and crawls crawls underneath of a car and ends up stuck out in the middle of this firefight, curled up under the car watching it. And we were out being interviewed uh, after the film was finished, and someone had asked me, you know, what's a scene in the book that you would like to have seen in the film that wasn't there? And I described the scene, and Ridley turns to me and says. Why don't you tell me that, mate? You know, <laughs> he really liked that scene. And Jerry said, huh. don't tell him that. He'll go back out and reshoot it. <laughs> well, funny thing is, is, I wrote that scene. I thought that was a, so cool that there's a kid and he's, he's, he's terrified, you know, because these guys look like robots from the future, according to the Somalis, just like yeah. machines, you know, in heavy gear. And I thought kids, you know, it was like kids POV. This is uh, Sergeant Eversman giving orders to uh, D. Tommaso, which has got to be particularly wounding to Tom Di Tommaso because he was in real life uh, Eversman's commanding officer and was in fact the guy who led these guys right. <laughs> over to the crash site. So not only do we <laughs> submerge his character into Eversman's, we have Eversman giving him orders. <laughs> oh man. And that was, a, Sorry, I can't Tom. remember that guy's name, but that was a real guy, by the way, who had been in Somalia um, playing that part. Oh, but anyway, I wrote that scene uh, with, with Bush walking by and the kids seeing the feet, and I don't know why we didn't film it. I really worked hard on the transitions, and I thought, you know, transitions are a big deal for me. Um, how do you get from scene to scene? The pros do it so well, and like Francis Ford Coppola or, you know, whoever, um, pros. And... Uh, I thought, light resistance, and then show all the Humvees, and it's just the end of the world inside these Humvees. It's cramped, and people are getting shot and dying, and things are blowing up. And on the page, it says, light resistance. It's the end of the fucking world. This is one of my f most disturbing sequences, my favorite part of the movie. Something about the way Kim Coates delivers this line coming up, you know, tell my daughter's daddy's going to be fine. It just it really gets me. 
He was the oldest of the Delta Force operators and had actually fought in Vietnam. He was in his, I think he was in his 40s in this battle. And he was due to get out of the Army um, really just in a matter of weeks or months. So it was just so tragic that he was killed in this episode. I saw this, people gasped when that hand in the theater, they just went, (gasps) In real life, the soldier who found the hand on the street's name was Aaron Hand. True story. Yeah. Again, you know, it's terrible to show something like this, but it's part of what combat is. Mm-hmm. It was horrible, but they, they had built this prosthetic where they dug a hole in the ground and Kim Coates gets in this coffin-like thing and then they put this that stuff on where it looks like he's blown in half. It was so realistic that flies landed on it, <laughs> but it was plastic and they got all confused, like, what, what is this? Yeah, I thought if if we don't show the violence, we've done a disservice to what happened to these guys. One of the most terrifying aspects of this battle is the 360-degree nature of the battlefield. Mm. Traditional battlefields, the enemy's in one place and you're in another, and you have at least uh, a safe spot to your rear. You know that if you focus in a certain direction that, uh, that you don't have to worry about something coming up behind you. But these soldiers were fighting in the middle of a city and people were shooting at them from all directions and it just had to be so terrifying not, yeah. not to know where to go to, to be safe. Plus from rooftops and not just front and back but above. Oh man, we went back and forth on this Humvee squad stuff. It was so complicated. But this was the most tragic part of the battle, the Humvees wandering to the city. The fact that they were unable to steer these vehicles Six blocks uh, is really one of the most tragic uh, failings of, of the mission. That's Ewan Bremner. You might remember him from Train Spotting and uh, Pearl Harbor. He's a Scottish actor. And he, his accent is so great. And Tom Hardy is Irish and English. I thought they were supposed to come to us. When they did their scenes, we were all just cracking up. They had such great chemistry together. And you and Bremner, I mean, I gave him some photos. I said, here, I took some pictures, and here's some pictures of yourself on set. And he goes, thanks, I'll treasure these. <laughs> and then he's got this accent like, hey, Twombles. <laughs> uh, he was just... And we worried, like, should we do any comedy? I mean, this is not a funny movie, you know? But there is comedy in the book, and there was yeah. comedy during the battle. I mean, these guys, mm-hmm. uh, you know, lighten the mood occasionally by uh, making each other laugh. I mean, it sounds odd, but it, it's real. This actually happened. Sean Nelson was uh, deafened for a good portion of the battle. I was worried about it. When I saw it with an audience, people just laughed their heads off. And I thought, oh, they needed this. They need. They were so tense. That's why they're laughing so hard, because it, it's a funny scene, but also because whew, they needed to take a breath, you know? And so much of this movie is about pacing. This is one of the scenes Ridley just made up in his head, you know, during one of our marathon script development sessions, and Mike Stenson and Jerry Bruckheimer and I just start cracking up. I mean, he said, well, you got these guys running up a building, right? And then there's a helicopter, and they're trying to put the doctors in, and, and the Smiles are running up with an RPG, and he says, give me 90 degrees left. And he says, you got it. And the minigun turns, and... This is actually true, though, that yeah. the helicopter that delivered the rescue team got hit while it was hovering, and the pilot, Dan Gelata, which is a tremendous act of heroism, held the 
Blackhawk in place until the last man got off the rope. And you can actually see in the real videotape of the battle that when he gets hit, his first instinct is to pull up and away. Mm. And he does briefly and then settles it back down and basically just toughs it out, hangs there until the last man is safely off the rope. That's what always fascinated me is what kind of people are these guys who who don't run, who hang out, who stay to protect their uh, comrades. And it, it goes deeper than like, you're, oh, we're trained that way. There's something, these guys are ultimate type A personalities, overachievers. It was very interesting to get in their, try to get in their mindset. We only had the helicopters for about if I remember, two weeks total. So all this helicopter intercutting you, you see was filmed over a two-week period. There's a little continuity mistake there. The helicopter, when it uh, turns to come in, is empty, and then that's, that second shot, it's got people in the hanging out of the doorways. Nonsense, mate. You tried to go after <laughs> I had to get that in. Ridley, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry <laughs> to imitate you. This, again, is just completely accurate. Uh, he got hit... Initially, he had uh, enough control over the helicopter to continue flying. So he ended up flying a good mile or more away from the main area of the fighting before, before he crashed, which made it tragically impossible for them to get to him in time. During the 24 drafts of the script I wrote, we played around with when should the second chopper crash, how much time should pass, 20 pages, 10 pages. We did all sorts of different versions, trial and error. And it, it seems to make sense now. It's like, well, of course it should happen here. You know, everything makes sense. But uh, you wouldn't believe how, how possible it is to have infinite permutations of this complex story since there's so many stories. And piecing them all together, it, it really gave us all a giant headache and was so hard to do. I think it finally came out pretty good. Another thing was, how often do you cut back to the JOC, the Joint Operations Center in Garrison, you know, and how much does he say? This is a scene I was talking about earlier where the Rangers hunker down and the Delta Force guys realize that if they don't keep moving, they're going to all be killed. It's where Lorenzo Ruiz gets shot. Enrique Marciano playing Lorenzo showed up. And he had one line of dialogue in the script. He says, man, can you, Ken, can you help me? Can I get a bigger part in this movie? So we kind of redid his part and put him with Jason Isaac so there could be two actors and Jason wouldn't just be with, you know, extras. Jason could act off someone and he and Enrique would come to me with their own scenes and say, what do you think? I said, great, you know, and do it. And uh, you'll see their upcoming scenes are pretty good together. But I, I really realized how much an actor can contribute to your script and how much they think about it. They obsess over their parts and they have all these ideas. On this upcoming scene, Jason and Bill Fickner, William Fickner, went back and forth about the scene so often that they, and they were best of friends, but they would argue back and forth and come to my room, and we, I must have rewritten the scene 18 times, and they finally went into Ridley's trailer and said, you know, I think the scene should be this way, and William Fickner's like, well, I think it should be this way, and 
Ridley finally had to kick him out of the trailer. Send <laughs> both of you out. <laughs> it's funny how much you can go back and forth over little bits of dialogue and what should they say, but when you're watching the movie, you're so into the pace of it that I realized it almost didn't matter. It's, it, the gist of it is, hey, I want to go down there. Well, I can't go down there. I have to stay here. And after all that trial and error, I think, wow, why do we even try? It was, you almost can't concentrate on what they're saying because you're so into this moment. Both Durant and his co-pilot Ray Frank were knocked unconscious initially by the impact, and both of them had broken legs and hurt their backs. They have shock absorbers in the seats of those Blackhawks, which cushioned the blow somewhat, but they landed. They hit so hard, it just snapped uh, uh, Durant's femur right on the edge of the uh, seat. We don't see anything moving down there now. We don't even know if anyone's alive. There were so many stories in the movie, we, in the script, we had to figure out what do we tell, what do we leave out, what's important, uh, what moves the action forward. And leaving anything out was, you know, it was kind of painful because it was real and I didn't want the soldiers to show up and say, well, where's the part where I did this, you know, but it was just bound to happen. This is one of those scenes that Jerry felt was absolutely necessary because it, it showed how heroic these guys were. They knew what they were going to go back into, and they went back in. This character, uh, Brad Thomas, is, this is a real scene, and it happened in the battle, and he had come in on this convoy and seen his friends killed, and he was ordered to go back out, and he momentarily basically backed down. He told the sergeant that he couldn't do it. This, you know, to me, is really an interesting idea when you think about it, what the nature of courage is, because, I mean, for him to admit his fear in front of everybody else, he's being really true to himself, and in a weird way, he's, he's being more courageous than everyone around him, but uh, he does subsequently, as the scene shows, um, decide that he has a duty to do, and he gets out, gets back on the car and goes back out. And when I wrote that scene in the book, I talked to Brad about it before, and he was not not proud of himself for having had that moment of uh, uh, fear and, and of backing down momentarily. And he said, uh, well, explain to me why you think it's important, sir. And I said, well, because it shows how terrifying the situation was, that somebody like you who you know, it trains with this unit and prepares to do this kind of thing, you know, could could really crumple, you know, could could really lose it for a few moments. And ultimately, though, the fact is that you got back on the vehicles and you went back out. And that's the, the you know, I think that that's a very powerful moment. And he said, OK, then, sir, it's all right. <laughs> He's now uh, in Delta Force. And this scene seems very dramatic, but if you listen to Sergeant Struker talk about it, it's almost exactly the way he said. He said, you talked to him, he looked in his side view mirror, he saw he was sitting there, he thought he's not coming. He started pulling away, Thomas shouted something, he stopped, he got in the Humvee, and it's, as often as we could, it was, we wanted to do what really happened. Yeah, it could. illustrates the fact that brave men are not brave because they don't feel fear. It's because they manage to rise to the occasion when they're terrified. Sort of the key to the movie was that little scene, you know. It's what you do right now that makes you a ranger, makes a difference. Really love this donkey. We had he'd written in, I want a donkey trundling by, clop, 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 in the development sessions. And then 
when we had to cut budgets, they were like, we have to cut this, we have to cut that, we have to cut the donkey scene. He goes, damn it, all right. He kind of sank in his chair. And then we were going on in the movie, and I was continually rewriting. And, and I got a note in the middle of the script that says, I missed the donkey. And finally we got the donkey back in. And the day that it was shot, the donkey on cue walks right by and he goes, fucking donkey was great. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the first AD, Terry Needham, this guy has been working with Kubrick for, since the 70s and worked with Ridley, said, oh, to stick three cattle prods up its ass. <laughs> it's not true. No animals were injured in the, making this film. Or even threatened. No. Rangers! Oh! It's Yurik! You fucking asshole! <laughs> no, we almost fucking killed you! I wasn't sure. I thought maybe be, this would be too high comedy, but again, I saw it with the audiences a couple times, and they just ate it up. They they really needed the, the breath and the ability to have some nervous laughter expelled, you know, which I think... You sort of have to do in any serious action movie. Hey, never mind, you put not, right? No. No, I didn't bring it. You wanna know why? Because you said I'm not gonna need that, dude. We'll be back in a half hour. No, I wasn't saying it to you. Nah. Nelson. <laughs> this way. Man, we're gonna need night. What's the matter with you? Huh? Huh? Mind you, he talks like this. <laughs> Scottish. We had Scottish actors, English actors, American actors. Nikolai Waldau is from Denmark, who was in the original Night Watch, which was odd because Ewan McGregor was in the American remake. And uh, I remember we were playing doubles tennis together, and Nikolai was on one side. We were in the Hilton, you know, tennis courts, and and McGregor was on the other side, and they were hitting it back and forth, and someone shouted, It's a battle of the Night Watches. And uh, Nikolai won. There's Gregory doing this. I can't raise him. I can't raise can't him. Raise him sergeant. <laughs> Well, this is another one of the pickup shots, uh, post-production shots, where we thought we needed it. And Eric Bana came up and he said, uh, Wow, it was easy to tell that the uh, <laughs> the new shots, because Sam was 10 pounds heavier and Stephen's hair was blue. <laughs> That's a terrible Eric Bana imitation, but I just I cracked up. But again, we, we felt like, uh, you got to reorient the audience or else they're going to get lost, they're going to get frustrated, and they're going to revolt. It's a very fine line. Sam does brooding very well. Yeah. I think I even wrote, like, Garrison broods or, or stares or nods. One of the things, if I can toot my own horn a bit, is um, people say, oh, this must have been easy to write. One of the actors even said this to me, like, this must have been easy to write because there wasn't much dialogue. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, you know, Ridley just comes out and sort of make it up that day, you know, uh, which actually he would sometimes, but... You do need something on paper, and uh, all this stuff was written down. So if you think a screenplay is just dialogue, you're wrong. Yeah, it's just such an extraordinarily complex story, and to be able to condense it into two hours, two and a half hours, I'm amazed at how much of the actual battle gets into this film. We crammed everything in there. I think this is one of the coolest shots in the movie. Uh, yeah, this was in the trailer, the first trailer. It's a really dramatic shot. William Fickner is a great physical actor, you know. He's, he comes in, his hands are pinwheeling about. and Just seeing the professionalism of these veteran actors was amazing. And we had a lot of brand new actors. So 
And it was sort of like Delta Ranger thing where the older actors would kind of hang around the older actors and the younger guys would hang around together. And Ne'er the twain shall meet. What? One of the things that the, all the rangers I interviewed for this book remarked upon was the sort of the strange phenomenon of Somalis running toward the sound of gunfire. I mean, they couldn't figure out why large groups of people would run toward, you know, danger. But the, it was, a you know, a phenomenon. I think it's because there's really nothing going on in Mogadishu so that when things happen, uh, you know, people are just uh, want to see what's going on. Yeah. That's Nick Waldo. He's from Denmark. This scene, of course, reenacts one of the most astonishing acts of military heroism in modern history where these two men, Gary Gordon and Randy Shugart, who are watching from above and so they can see precisely how dangerous the situation is on the ground, you know, volunteer to go down and try and hold off this crowd by themselves. It was one of those scenes where somehow in the script development, it got left out in a couple drafts and we all said, you know what, Shugart and Gordon are one of the keys to this story. Right there, that dog running by, there were tons of dogs that were running loose and alone. It was terrible. And uh, I remember Ridley wasn't happy with that shot because the trucks weren't close enough together. And he looked on the playback monitor and he said, oh, we got a dog in it. And he liked the dog. Sizemore had asked uh, about the, the character he played, Danny McKnight, and one of the passages in the book about McKnight uh, described how in the midst of really terrible gunfire, he, he didn't take cover. He walked uh, without ducking his head, without running. He just figured that if he was going to get hit, he was going to get hit, mm -hmm. and there was nothing he could do to stop it, so he wasn't going to flinch or, or bow, and he also felt it was his responsibility as a commanding officer to demonstrate that he wasn't afraid, uh, that he was getting his job done. And so Tom really does a lot with that <laughs> yeah. character trait. I've heard people say like, oh, I love Tom Sizemore in this movie, the way he just walks through the bullets. And other people say, oh, you know, it seemed a little Hollywoodish. I said, no, McKnight said he did that. You know, he just thought, you're either going to get shot walking or running. It makes no difference. Right. It wasn't even McKnight who told me that. It was the other guys who said he was just... Uh, Held his head up wow. and walked around like he was walking across the street at home. This was just the most terrifying and bloody phase of the battle. There were more men injured and killed on this convoy than at any other phase of the fight. And it was also the most complex thing to write in the script. We had to go back and forth and back and forth and figure out why did the Humvees miss the turn? Well, how are we going to show that? The audiences aren't going to... It may have happened that way, but our audience is going to believe it, you know? Because you get people saying, oh, I didn't buy it. Even though it's true, you sometimes have to change it because people will disbelieve it. I can't even imagine volunteering to go in, and I was very sensitive when I was writing the script about the families coming to see this movie, and, you know, what would Stephanie Shugart think about this? Would she be able to watch it? And it was... You know, I talked to Johnny Strong, who plays Shugart, and we were like, well, you know what, we have a big responsibility here to do this accurately and in good taste and do it well. And So everyone felt this, uh, not a pressure, but a burden, not a burden either, but a responsibility to, we knew we were making kind of a special project, you know. 
Well, what's been so exciting to me about this whole thing is that this was an episode that basically the vast majority of people never even realized happened. And yet, you know, there were all these extraordinary uh, acts of heroism performed by soldiers like Randy Shugart and Gary Gordon. And so writing the book probably, you know, uh, reached a million people, maybe, maybe a little over a million people. But this movie has now made, you know, this episode, it'll be remembered as one of the most famous episodes in American military history. Mm -hmm. And so it's entered the the sacrifices and heroism of these men into... Uh, into the popular memory. And, I, and so the family members who I've talked to who've seen the film are just so grateful that, uh, that this has been done. I'm glad to hear that. It's worried me a lot. It's Michael Roof right there, uh, who's a comedian. And uh, he's going to be in a movie called Triple X. I think all these guys are going to come out of this and be, have great careers. They're multi-talented. Most of them play guitar, tap dance, or do other things. You know, it's made me realize what a real actor. They is. were a lot of fun to hang around with. Yeah, in <laughs> I mean, all we had was the Hilton Bar, and that was about it. <laughs> yeah. So every night we, if you, you know, if you were alone, if you wanted to chit chat with anyone, you could always find someone in the Hilton Bar, even people who didn't drink. There's not much to do. Now, of course, when this convoy made the decision to exit the city, it meant that these men who had run uh, over to the site of the down Blackhawk here were basically stranded in the middle of a city of more than a million people, besieged on all sides. And they were disgusted. You know, they felt uh, they'd been forgotten and left behind. And it was reasonable for them to conclude that, uh, that they weren't going to get out at this point. Get the hell out of here before it's too late. Colonel McKnight went back to base and he, he had a good reason. Changes nothing. All right, listen up. We're going to hold the perimeter and we're going to hold the strong point. Hua? Serve your ammo. These are hard scenes to write because it's important to, to say to the audience, okay, the objective has changed. Here's what's going on now at this point. Like if you see aliens, objectives are constantly changing. Here's what's going on now. We have to tell you what the objective is now without hitting the viewer over the head. In real life, uh, this episode is a source of some contention. When the Medals of Honor were awarded to Gary Gordon and Randy Shugart posthumously, they come with a description of their actions that, that for which they're receiving the award. And in the descriptions, they show uh, Randy Shugart being killed first and Gary Gordon uh, being killed second. And when I researched the episode uh, for various reasons, which are complex and I won't bother to explain here, I concluded that it was the opposite, that uh, that Gary Gordon was killed first and that Randy Shugart uh, lasted longer. And I didn't really think that much about it, but when I wrote it that way, and I'm convinced that it's accurate, it came as a real blow to the families of these men because they had one story in their minds of how their loved ones had spent their last minutes on earth and for this writer to come along and tell them no no you know the the image that you have in your head is is mistaken <laughs> was a real, was a real blow in this scene you know where Randy Shugart gives uh, uh, Durant a weapon and runs off when we first saw it um, everybody said it looked like 
he was giving him a weapon and then running away and abandoning him. So yeah. they added a, another line where he says, I'll be right outside. Yeah. You know, so people it's, realize that he's not just running away. It seemed like he was saying, good luck, man. See you later. But uh, of course, that didn't happen. Everything they got, Pakistanis, Malays, I want their tanks. Now, the reason he's got sunglasses on, and there was a scene cut where he went outside and came back in. He wasn't just throwing his sunglasses on because he's a kooky general. But it, it adds to the sort of mythic quality, I think, of Garrison. Get it. Get everything. He's a larger-than-life guy in real life, according to Mar. He's one of the most amazing uh, figures in modern American military history. He's been involved in just about every covert operation since the Operation Phoenix in uh, Vietnam. And someday I hope to write a story about General Garrison. And when we were filming the scene, I remember this day that Colonel Tom Matthews was here watching this, and he had his chair turned around with his back to the scene when they were filming it. And he had a toothpick in his mouth and this little tight look on his face. And I thought, wow, he can't even watch this. This is so upsetting. You know, he's like, I don't want to watch. I would just rather get through today. And every once in a while, something would hit me like that, where I think we were making a real story here. That real guys went through this. This is incredibly accurate and horribly upsetting. Yeah, one of the most memorable and terrible things to come out of this battle were those pictures of dead American soldiers being dragged through the streets. And the soldiers that you saw pictured being dragged through the streets were the men who were at this crash site who were killed and, and the crowd overran it. And so we, we showed in this scene uh, the, the body of uh, one of the men being dragged out uh, right there, uh, which is enough of a suggestion, I think, of the, of the images that everybody remembers, you know, really horrible. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been kind of tacky to restage Gratuitous. those terrible pictures. And also that happened, those pictures were taken a day after the battle. So, in fact, you know, the movie ends before we get to that point. To hear what Mike Durant said about this moment is just disturbing. You know, he thought, I'm going to die. Got to read the book. Yep. But this is exactly how it happened. And remember, as he's being jerked around and beaten, he has a compound fracture of his right leg. He's got an injured back. Mm. Uh, just in, he actually said that he felt himself, he had like an out-of-body experience at this moment. He was so terrified and in so much pain, he felt himself leave his body, and he, so he was watching this all from above. That photo we took out was uh, a photo of Eric Bana's wife, Rebecca, and their son, Klaus, who was with us the entire time shooting, and Klaus is just so cute, and he apparently still talks about Morocco, Morocco. <laughs> And it was one of those little quirks that they asked me to put in. I said, well, what can I have for Michael Duran? How about a photo of his wife and kid? And it turned out to be very poignant, the way his hand is reaching out. And... Remember, we had real, uh, real soldiers here doing these scenes, too, and they were just shouting out orders and, you know, guy need more curlax over here, and we got a bleeder, and... I was like, whoa, I'm in a real scene here. This is real. This dialogue is taken directly from the uh, radio traffic. In the, it, at least it sounds exactly like is, what yeah. was said. This decision of uh, Hoot in the movie, in, the, in real life, it was Sergeant John Mesa Hunas, to get out and go off on foot you know, back into the middle of the city 
it's just one of the most extraordinary acts of heroism imaginable. Yeah, and you wouldn't even think of it that way. It's just like, my job, got to go do it. Let's yep. go. Yep. Time to get out. Uh, these are these walls are, you know, like 1,500 years old or whatever, and they're all over Morocco, these old buildings. We just drive up and shoot right there, and you have your set right here. If, if we didn't film in Morocco, if, if we filmed somewhere in, like, Arizona, this movie would not be as good as it is, to say the least. So authentic. I can smell it. Ridley kept stressing to me, we've got to have stories within stories, you know. Um, that's my line right there. <laughs> um, stories within stories, like the guy running in the schoolhouse, Yurik running in the schoolhouse, or... You know, the the prayer being sung and the lull in the battle. Otherwise, you, you know, you just have a long... What is he saying there? He's, mira, mira, papa. I'm not papa. sure what, what Gabe is saying. Like, I have no papa. idea where that came from. <laughs> <He just laughs> is made that it Italian up. or something? Yeah. Or? That's Spanish. Mira. Look. Hmm. Roger, who is this? Sanderson, do not. I say again. Do not fire to the east. We are coming to you. Understood. Di Tommaso and his men are on the southeast corner. We need you on the northeast building. Roger. We'll take it. Hey, watch out for skinnies. They're all over the rooftop. When I wrote the book, you know, in a book you can digress for a few pages, which has the effect of pacing the action of the battle so that you draw the reader out of it from time to time. And, you know, you can't, in, in making a film, it's really a difficult thing to do a digression. So, uh, you know, the pacing of it is really... I love the fact that these soldiers keep falling down. Mm -hmm. um, these guys in real life, you know, they're tremendously fit and young, but they're carrying like 50 pounds of equipment, and it just makes them so human, mm -hmm. you know, that, they, that they're constantly tripping over their own feet because I'm sure that's what actually happens. Yeah, you try to pick up one of these saws, a squad automated weapon, it's heavy... Hold your fire, we're coming in. And all these guys went to boot camp. Um, actually went through uh, one week of intense basic training, learning how to fire weapons, and they, by the end, they all knew what they were doing, you know, as much as you can in a week. Tom Hardy's gun would jam, guns jammed all the time. they just clear the breach and get it going again, like right in the same shot. They were like real soldiers. I mean, as much as we could make them like real soldiers. <laughs> I mean, it's it's one of those moments where it's like it's. I know it's wrong to laugh, but I have to. <laughs> I have to laugh. Tom Hardy, who plays Twombly, does an incredible array of impersonations, including the entire movie of Platoon. Uh, he does Willem Dafoe and. Uh, Barnes. Can you cover us, Sergeant? Well, we were here for God, like a month and a half on this little set. Eating these crappy sandwiches. <laughs> and lots of Moroccan soil. Yeah. Yeah, you just like dirt everywhere and we all got sick from the water and you know, 
you would see people doing this funny walk and you go, oh yeah, I know what's going on with you. One of the criticisms I've heard is you can't tell the soldiers apart. And I think 10 years from now, people will see that as not only a, a plus, but intentional by Ridley, is that you're not really supposed to tell them all apart. They are sort of one giant character. Well, it's true of, of the reality of battle. Only in Hollywood is there one hero who rises to the occasion and defeats the enemy and saves the day. In, in real battle, you have uh, hundreds of different soldiers, each one of them doing their job. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so in a sense, it uh, preserves the documentary feel. This, I think, to me, is the most powerful moving scene in the film. And this is absolutely true. Uh, Jamie Smith is, uh, was shot and hit in the femoral artery, as is explained. And uh, the, the artery, when it was severed, retracted up into his uh, torso, and they were unable to find it. And, and they struggled for hours to save his life. So to me, this is really what combat is all about. It's about a perfectly healthy, strapping young man uh, basically going from that to a uh, to dying, you know, and, and his friends literally inserting their hands into his wound, trying to stem the bleeding to, to keep him alive. Is that scene I was talking about where Jason and Enrique basically came to me and said, is it okay if we do this? I said, sure, we'll do whatever you want. Well, you didn't know? he in this scene initially slap yeah, it's, Ruiz it's to get his attention. Out. Yeah, they wanted yeah. to go crazy with it. Yeah, and I think one of the technical advisors said a, a, an American officer would never slap a wounded man. Right. <laughs> when I was reading Mark's book and deciding, well, what's the structure? And they asked me when I was trying to get the job, you know, I knew that the death of Jamie Smith was the key to the second act leading into the third act because it was it stuck with me so much from Mark's book that here was a guy who could have been saved if they sent a helicopter in, but they were unable to, and it must have been horrible for him to just slowly bleed out and his friends to watch. And and how do how do the soldiers hang on to their themselves after seeing their friend die, and how do you continue to fight? When I wrote this scene, I interviewed Kurt Schmidt, who was the medic who... Uh, struggled so hard here to save Jamie's life. And he told me this story, and I said to him, you know, Kurt, I'm going to have to call Jamie's dad and tell him this because I can't have him just read this uh, in the story. And Kurt told me that ja he had promised Jamie before he died that he would visit his parents and and give them, you know, his last words and tell them how he died. And he had never been able to bring himself to do it. So Kurt said, well, no, don't call Jim it's my responsibility. I need to talk to him. So he flew back from Korea, where he was okay. based, to meet with Jim and to tell him the story. And it was really for both the Smith family and for Kurt, uh, I think, a, an important moment and a healing moment for both of them. I was hoping this movie would achieve that as well for the families, that maybe it would be a moment of closure for them, hopefully. I remember uh, Eric came down to the Hilton in the morning. We had a cup of coffee together, and Eric Banner says, well, I said, how'd it go yesterday? He goes, well, you know how we blew up that Blackhawk? <laughs> the charge didn't go off first, and they said, okay, it hasn't blown up yet. 
go back in and refilm the scene. So Eric's going back and he says, there's these pieces of metal and little hunks of, you know, debris. And I'm looking around thinking, is this thing just going to blow up when I get in here? And they were running away and the thing blew up and they came back to the video village to watch the playback. And Eric's like, how'd it go, Ridley? And Ridley kind of nods, good, mate. And everyone was sort of stone-faced and they didn't know why until they saw it. And they saw this flaming hulk of metal land behind them. It doesn't look that bad in the playback. <laughs> Flaming Hulk's a metal weren't <laughs> supposed to come and down. And actually in real life what they use is a thermite grenade, which is all heat, not, it doesn't make a big explosion like that. But uh, And I mentioned that to Ridley at one point. He says, in my movie, it's going to blow up. God, I'm glad you did a Ridley. <laughs> <laughs> I think you do a better Ridley than I do. Now, this is an interesting scene that was originally, that was cut at one point, and I watched it. I said, you guys, this is an amazing scene. We've got to put this in. And, of course, they must have heard it from a bunch of different people or someone must have ignored me and come up with, come up with it themselves. But I'm glad they put it in. This is my line. Oh. That's right. Here we go. None of you Americans smoke anymore. <laughs> That's one of my lines. It made yeah. it into the movie. Yeah. And I wrote that because I've traveled a lot around the world. And, and one thing that happens in other countries that doesn't ever happen in the United States anymore is that people offer you cigarettes to be nice and you say no thank you and they go oh that's right you're an american none of you americans smoke anymore my friends would all say oh i saw your movie i saw your movie i love this one line um none of you americans smoke anymore did you write that ken it's great i go no uh, <laughs> mark that, wrote that. Uh, this actor trevor trevor is his name trevor etienne uh, who's also from london showed up and he was going to play atto the guy in the beginning you know and they realize, oh, my God, we called the wrong guy, and he's here in Morocco. And he's too young, obviously, to be Atto, so they sent him home, and he was devastated. Then they called him up and said, you know what? There is this character, Frimby. Come back and play Frimby. And I think they had called a different actor and cast it already, but that guy couldn't do it. So then Trevor comes back and does this, and I think he's fantastic in this part. But it was like two days of, of just a crushing blow to him and then joy. This is how things are in our world. Ridley was very sensitive about putting the Somali perspective in, and people say, oh, it's a racist movie. We don't show the Somali perspective, and I disagree with the criticism. Uh, this is what happened. We're showing both sides. We won't leave you behind. This actually happened. They flew helicopters over the city broadcasting messages to ask Mike Durant to hang on. And, in fact, they broadcast the names of all of the men because, at that point, uh, they weren't sure that those men were dead. I mean, men like uh, Randy Shugart and Gary Gordon were trained to take cover and dig a hole if necessary and live in the hole. And so they were, there were hopes that, um, that they were still alive. I think this is one of the most extraordinary performances in the film, this actor, Hugh Dancy. Hugh Dancy, he's Hugh English Dancy. as well. You can just see so much going on in his face, you know, his fear, his determination his realization that there's very little hope. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, Ridley was going to shoot it just where Jamie Smith simply dies, and, and he said, see if you can write a scene, mate. And I went back and forth, and I couldn't really write it. And one of the things I learned as a screenwriter through this process of my first movie is I knew this was an important scene, and I wanted to make Ridley happy. I wanted to make Jerry happy. I wanted, so I wrote these scenes to make them happy, and they all came out as phony you know, and false. And one day I'm in the Hilton, I'm writing my stuff, you know, as I did every day. And, and I just said, you know what, you got to, Ken, you got to go back to what 
interested you originally and what God, this is so gruesome. What what attracted you to the material? No one wants you to please them. Write something from your gut and from your heart and without sounding too cheesy, that's what I did. And uh it just sort of all popped out all of a sudden. And this is the scene as it went and these actors who had been saying things like Cover me, cover me. Just tore it up in there when I watched this and they were doing the scene and they needed to act for lack of a better word to me this scene is is really the essence of combat and the reason it's so disturbing is you know we see violence all the time on television you know I don't want to sound like some freak but we our brain sort of flatlines as someone blows someone away on TV but when you see real violence like you're sitting on a street corner and you see two cars smash into each other you're shocked you know it's like oh my god those cars just smashed into each other. Someone just got hit. Real violence is disturbing. And not that this is, quote, real violence, but it's realistic. And people say, oh, Black Hawk Down's so violent. It's not that violent movie. The thing is, is the violence is realistic and it's disturbing. And here comes Charlie's scene that gets me. All right, it's coming up in a bit. This is all Ridley. Ridley just would make these scenes up. Like, he finds an old coffee grinder, right? Sort of to finish off the coffee theme. And then a blown-out Moroccan bar. And he sort of puts it in there and <laughs> gets some hot water boiling. I'm like, okay. And he would just, like, tell me these scenes. i go home and write them. Well, it's based on reality. I mean, obviously, I read the book because, you know, at this point in the book, the character, Stebbins, who Grimes is based on, is the coffee maker for the unit is addicted mm -hmm. to coffee and he finds himself at this hour, you know, gazing off in the distance thinking somewhere somebody's <laughs> drinking a hot cup of coffee. Cup of coffee. I don't, in the actual battle in, in the book, he doesn't get a chance to make any coffee. Mm. But uh, So this is a real Hollywoodism here. Yeah. Gold Coast blend was my line. It's a laugh every time. <laughs> William Fickner is the only actor who came to my room in the Hilton to discuss scenes in Room 100 who said, Hey, Ken, can you take out some of my dialogue? Because I don't think it's necessary. I went, whoa. I waited to change his name, too. Because he was a uh, Delta Force yeah. soldier who was still in the unit, so the Army didn't want the guys who were still in the unit named. So Ridley said, you know what, we got to change a bunch of names, come up with a list of names. So I had these names like Deke Branch and John Hatchet or something, you know, and Ridley would chuckle. And uh, Bill got his list of Ridley-approved names, and he called me up. He says, all right, let's go over these names. And I had called my brother saying, Matt, you got to help me. I need, I need some names. Names are so hard to come up with. He said, I'll give you the whole list of the Buffalo Bills AFC champs of 1981. So Bill's reading over this list, and he says, Joe Ferguson, Reggie McKenzie. He says, wait a minute, are you from Buffalo? I said, yeah. <laughs> Turns out we grew up like 15 minutes away from each other. <laughs> This scene, you know, uh, is uh, parallels, again, something that actually happened uh, during the battle. Uh, the Somalis are operating what the uh, soldiers call a crew-served weapon, which is it's a large enough weapon that it requires two guys or three guys to service. And, and it was really, you know, potentially going to um, destroy their position and, and, you know, turn the tide. And one of the Delta Force operators just said, uh, you know, appeared and said, Where's that coming from? I'll take care of this guy, dude. <laughs> mm -hmm. This was a struggle in the script. How do we make the third act continue to build instead of kind of just plateau and level off, you know? Um, 
A good example of something like that happening is clear and present danger, where you've got the incredible suburban attack scene with the RPGs in the second act. And then the third act just kind of, you know, kind of peters out. Great movie, but uh, it was very tough to figure out what's, how's the third act going to increase, how's the tension going to increase. And Ridley would always, and Jerry would nudge me in their not gentle, not so gentle ways. So Roz gets blown up. Um, and uh, I'd get notes back from Ridley with notes on the script that were like, almost there, or <laughs> try again, or good job, and then sometimes, you've got to be kidding, exclamation point. <laughs> so, we, you know, the script is never finished. And it can always be better in the moment you think, this is done, you're dead. In fact, Ridley didn't finish this movie until, what, about 40 minutes before the, uh, right. op before the opening night? Not even done with the script in post production because you got to rewrite for uh, pickups, reshoots, although there weren't many. Now, this was a really dangerous uh, part of the battle because the it was nighttime now, and the men on the ground really depended on the little birds to provide fire support to keep the Somalis off of them because they were overwhelmingly outnumbered. So they had to mark their position with these strobes. And it was really dangerous for them to run outside and fling these strobes and put them in the right places. And that was one of the things we said, well, how are we going to make the third act escalate? How are we going to give a climax to the third act? Because the guys basically, once they got in the buildings, they hunkered down and defended uh, the perimeters, various perimeters they were in. And it was sort of, as a movie, it was sort of anticlimactic. And my third act always ended like the book. It kind of like the guys got in the buildings. Uh, the convoy came in eventually and got him out. And we just said, we need something else. And Ridley, uh, and Jerry and Mike and I, various others said, what about this strobe thing? So here's the scene where uh, these actors just, I thought just nailed it. And uh, Harry Humphreys, the technical advisor, I came in and he, kind of walked out with this look on his face. I'm like, whoa. You know, I hadn't seen them film the first shot because I was writing and I came in with new pages. And he says, it's tough. It's tough to watch. I thought, wow, this guy's a Vietnam vet. If we're touching some, a nerve in him, we're, we're getting something here. You tell my parents that I fought well today. That I... This was particularly significant to me because... You know, the one of the sort of quests within the overall quest of researching the battle and writing the book was to find out what happened to Jamie Smith. And, and it, you know, when I started, I had no idea that his death was this protracted and difficult episode, which, you know, proves to be really the most traumatic event, you know, for a lot of these guys in the whole battle. So, you know, having to explain this to his parents and... Mm write about it was really hard and, and it, you know I just think the movie captures it so powerfully and uh, Charlie Hoffheimer who plays Smith again actors can really help you with their script he came up to me and says I'm reading this book called How We Die I think that's what it's called and Sherwin Newland's book yeah, yeah great and he, book. he told me this is what happens when you bleed out you get really cold your teeth start to chatter you start to hallucinate you start to ramble and then at the last minute, you get this level of clarity, this moment of ultimate clarity where you apparently you feel, all right, you know, I accept it. 
And he said, if you can write something like that, man, it'd be, it'd be great. And that really put it into my head. I said, all right, Charlie, thanks. And went off and wrote this scene and really barely touched the scene, which was odd. Because usually he would go back and forth on scenes. You know, Kurt Schmidt, the medic in this, uh, in real life, who waged this kind of heroic battle to save Jamie's life, was really haunted by it still years later when I interviewed him. He felt that he had not done everything that he should have done, that he'd made mistakes, and that somehow Jamie's death was his fault. It's really taken him a long time to accept that, uh, that he did everything he, everything he could. Mm -hmm. This is one of those things in development we said... <laughs> What do we do with these characters? How do we get them to talk to each other? How does Eversman progress as a character? I hate to use the word arc, but what progression does he make? Can we have some kind of relationship between him and Mace or Hoot? And uh, I said, all right, the, you know, we said, let's do th like three scenes are enough, you know? So this is a second scene where he learns from the veteran, you know, you're going to have time to think about your friends later, your dead friends who die. You Believe me, you're going to have a lot of time. Yeah. I had explained it to Ridley when he came in, and he says, he says, why is he taking the ammo? I said, because Hoot is this pragmatist. You know, he sees, he doesn't see a dead soldier. He sees ammunition, got to survive the night, must go on, must survive. Which is one of the things that attracted me to the story was this base primal survival instinct that these guys finally got where they said their heart was literally hammering out of their chest, and then they kind of shut down and became survival animals, survival machines. Yeah, and that's really what this story is about. It's been kind of amusing to me to see so many journalists and critics struggling to figure out what the political message of this film is. And, and, and they're having so much trouble because there isn't a political message. This movie is about a group of young soldiers who desperately want to experience combat, to get into a battle, and they get their wish. And... And the film takes you, the reader, through that experience with them as they discover the horrors of battle and, uh, uh, and are, you know, wiser when they stumble out of the city. And, and, you know, these are the lessons that soldiers learn about battle, that death is random, uh, that you can be the best soldier in the world and, and you're going to get killed, and you could be the mm -hmm. worst soldier and you'll survive. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's just a really great, ghastly lottery, you know, yeah. combat is. And it's something that any sensible person would never want to experience. Mm. Yeah, Colonel Matthews said that to me. He said, Ken, I'm absolutely convinced that it's completely random who gets killed and who doesn't. You can be the best trained soldier in the world and you just, bullet finds you. And, uh, you know, Colonel Matthews has been in the army for probably his whole life. Now this scene, you know, where, uh, this is actually kind of a combination of two actual events from the battle. Um, one of the soldiers, I think it was, um, um, it was the Air Force. Well, guy, the one scene it? where Tim Wilkinson has to yeah. run across the street, you know, in the middle of all this gunfire. Mm -hmm. And so that's in there. And then there's one of the, I think it was Dave Deemer who had to throw the strobe out in the street. And at first he flung it and it didn't land in the right place. And so then... He had to run out and get it, retrieve it, and yes. put it in Some, the right place. Someone said, hey, man, that's yeah. no good. Go back out there. Yeah. I mean, and just imagine the, the uh, heroism, you know, just sucking it up and knowing that everybody in the world is going to be shooting at you and 
running out in the middle of it. And then, of course, when they marked the sites, uh, once those little birds knew uh, where to direct their fire, that's just, just a devastating firepower. To me, this is like a scene out of Star Wars right here. It's, yeah. This is the future. When I was in Somalia interviewing Somalis who fought in this battle, they told me that if it weren't for the helicopters, they would have killed every one of these uh, American soldiers, that the helicopters are what kept them from being able to mass in sufficient numbers to to win. Yeah, one of my early scripts, I, I didn't have that in there, and Mark came to L.A. and he said, I, you know, you're doing a great job. One thing, though, those little birds went all night long and kept them alive, so you got to put that in there. I said, oh, all right. Another thing that attracted me personally about this story, that there was a reason it hit me on such a primal level, is because I was the age of the soldiers at this time, and and I've always felt like, well, we're, there's a Generation X, is this generation that kind of gets no respect. We, we're known as slackers and skateboarders, and I always thought, we don't have anything to tag or hang our generation on, like the Vietnam War, World War II, or protests of the Vietnam War even. We're just sort of this generation that grew up like Madonna and Van Halen and, you know, slackers. Um, I thought, when I read about, when I read Mark's book, I said, this is a moment where something about this will, you know, will show people that Generation X, if, for lack of a better term, or guys my age, did things incredibly heroically and were involved in an amazing situation. No one knows about it. No one remembers it. And I thought, I, I must be involved in this, please. One of the things that's also been really uh, almost, uh, it's deeply ironic to me that uh, some of the critics have accused Black Hawk Down of being racist, um, simply on the basis of the fact that Somalis are black and, and most of the American soldiers who fought in this battle were white. And I can, a number of times Jerry called me during the, during the pre-production of this movie saying, Mark, there had to have been more black soldiers in Task Force Ranger. And I'd say, no, Jerry, the truth is that there were only two. And it's really a problem within the military. It's a, an example of, Colin Powell told me, he thought it was an example of what happens where you don't have affirmative action. And it's one of the things that the Army is trying to correct. But, you know, the choice that the filmmakers made, that Ridley made and written Jerry, was to be as accurate as possible. And so, you know, if you just judge things strictly on the surface... I suppose you can, uh, you know, reach the conclusion that this is somehow racist. But what makes it so ironic is that this was perhaps the first time in American history where we intervened militarily for strictly humanitarian reasons to try to save the lives of Somalis and to make Somalia a safer, better place. And, uh, you know, particularly a country that's accused of not caring about Africans, of intervening in Eastern Europe, but not intervening in African tragedies. Here was an instance where the United States did and, you know, tragically lost uh, American lives as well as Somali lives. And to have an episode like this then criticized as, as racist, just, uh, um, as I say, is just deeply ironic. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just precisely the opposite of that. I'm dumbfounded as well. It's like, we showed you what happened. I, I don't understand the comments. I understand that in America especially, we're really sensitive to white on black and black on white violence. And uh, of course, people are going to be, we knew it was going to be a hot potato and very sensitive issue and that the movie might get some criticism. But uh, 
to say that we intentionally went out and made a racist movie just baffles me mm. because I think Mark's book and also this movie handles the Somali side in a pretty objective way. I mean, this is exactly what happened on that day. And, you know, I think it's, uh, you have to really work at it to, uh, to put it in a, in a racist light. I think it's important to remember, too, that this mission was designed to capture two lieutenants of Mohammed Farah Idid, and I emphasize to capture them, not to kill them. The whole mission was designed to get in and get out without anybody getting hurt. And all of this happened because this force, when it hit the ground, was attacked uh, by a very well-armed, uh, reasonably well-organized Somali militia. And these men were forced into the position of basically fighting to survive. And so how that can be characterized as some sort of colonial or imperialistic mm -hmm. or racist uh, action is, uh, is beyond me. You know, one of the mistakes, though, that we did make in the film is the, uh, these vehicles, these armored personnel carriers, were driven by um, Malaysian soldiers. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, two Malaysian soldiers were killed during the battle. And we... Uh, ended up making the uniforms that these drivers are wearing are Pakistani uniforms. And so I think the, you know, the Malaysians uh, rightfully objected that the, their soldiers had been edited out of the film. Uh, it's such a hugely complicated story. I'm surprised it, it we got so much right, you know. Um, but it's just a testament to the crew. Now this scene where the uh, men have to, after having battled through this long, hard night have to run out of the city. It's another one of the moments where, you know, journalists have accused us of making things up, that this couldn't have happened in this way. And in fact, it's, it's the truth. Uh, this is exactly what happened. If you read the book, they call it the Mogadishu Mile. And it's just kind of one final indignity, you know, that these men had to go through. And thankfully, there were a few of these men injured on this run out of the city, but none of them were killed. I remember talking to John Clett, our advisor who was there. He said was, this is the moment he was most terrified where he had to run out, and he said it was incredible. I couldn't put it in the movie, but a bullet hit him in the arm and tore his American flag off, this patch off his arm, and just went whoosh. Yeah. And it, it hit his American flag, missed him, and hit another guy in the shoulder. I can't remember the soldier's name. But Randy Romalia. Yeah, Romalia, who was okay, turned out to be okay. But uh, John said the, the velocity of the bullet is so incredible that even when it skims you it throws you like five feet yeah well we should say randy was randy's okay now yeah uh, it took about a chunk of flesh about the size of a baseball out of the out Jeez. of his back by the way there were no dog wranglers those are all dogs that just hung around and uh actually found and rescued a dog and gave it to harry humphrey's a tech advisor so he really rescued it took him home to america so little sergeant biscuit as we call him won the doggy lottery he lives in orange <laughs> county now yeah uh, they call him Sergeant Rocco now. Scenes like this actually happen where women, uh, you know, picked up weapons. And, you know, one of the things that the soldiers were so remained somewhat haunted by was having to shoot at women and children because, you know, a 10-year-old uh, with an AK-47 is a, just as dangerous as a 50-year-old with mm -hmm. an AK-47. I remember we were having this discussion about it. Like, how could, you know, the ethical, the moral things about shooting at women and kids and one of the soldiers said, look, it wasn't like that. Once we were getting killed and bullets were flying around us, anyone came at us with a weapon, we shot at them. And if, if you were in that situation, you'd do it too. 
You know, that we just saw that scene where Gregory uh, vomits as he's running the city. It's one of my theories of modern cinema is that it's now a requirement to have someone vomit in, <laughs> in every movie. <laughs> uh, we almost made it out of this movie without anybody throwing up, right. but no. Gotta have the vomit scene. Gotta have the vomit scene. Uh, well, this is one of those moments where you can't tell who's who, and it's just teeth and eyes, and, and I think it's actually a plus instead of like oh they screwed up because you can't tell who's who you're not supposed to tell who's who this is supposed to be a just a, a great mass of now people are some people are confused by this scene uh because they pass through this cloud of smoke and suddenly there are somalis on both sides cheering and clapping and these boys these little somali children playfully leading them on and uh, and again, I've had journalists say, well, that you must have, you know, made that up. But it's true because the city was divided uh, into sectors and controlled by different warlords. And this was a sector of the city that was controlled by one of the rival warlords. And the people in this part of Mogadishu were very supportive of the American effort. So they went and the soldiers themselves didn't quite realize it. They were confused. They didn't know whether the crowds were mocking them or really cheering for them. And I like it a lot, too, because especially those images of the children beckoning them, to me, suggest the, the terrible difficulties that the United States faces, where it seems so inviting sometimes, uh, so much the right thing to do to intervene in these uh, small-scale foreign conflicts. And, the, and then you get in and you find out that the world is just a treacherously complicated place. And it's very difficult to know what's going on. It's kind of like a a snare. Mm. This is one of those other obscure, weird things that happen where Pakistani guys with white towels in their arms come up with cups of water, and one of those bizarre things that happen in this battle. Like, Here's some water, you know. Yeah, just this little polite, civilized gesture. Yeah. Did you okay. order this? The battle is over now. Here's your water. It's actually straight vodka, and Jason chugs it. <laughs> he didn't realize it. <laughs> uh, this is another thing. How many characters do you wrap up at the end? Who do you stay with? What's too much? You know, we had a little wrap-up for everyone, but at, at the end, you can't wrap up everybody. And the way to do it, I think, finally, is in imagery like this. Just guys, you know, amazed they're alive, laughing, hugging. How did we not get shot? Uh, and the camera shows you so much, you don't need all those scenes, although it would be nice. One thing I want to talk about is the accusation that there was no character development in this script that I've heard from some people. And my response is, character development? Do you mean when a character goes through the most pivotal moment in their lives and come out the other side different and forever changed? Uh, yeah, we have that in here. Eversman goes through it. Everybody does. But I think it's what it is is that people react to... The fact that this movie, this war movie is so, it's such a daring film in that it ignores some of the kind of hackneyed conventions mm -hmm. of, of uh, war movies where you develop, you know, the backstory for every character and, you know, the, the young wife waiting at home mm -hmm. and, the, you know, the mother waiting at home. And, you know, I think Ridley opted to focus the, this movie on action, you yep. know, on the battle itself, which is what gives it its power and its intensity. And people almost come to expect, oh, I want the character development, which to me means X, Y, and Z scenes that I've, I've come to expect as a moviegoer, and I want to cry, and please play with my emotions and manipulate me. And 
it's sometimes I think as a moviegoer, it makes me sick, and, and people are more intelligent than that. This, again, is a composite scene. Uh, Captain Steele did go into the tent and talk to some of the injured men, and one of the men who had been severely injured told him uh, that he would be fine and not to go back out without him. Uh, in this case, in the film, we've, we've put those words in Lorenzo Ruiz's mouth, and Lorenzo is one of the guys who survived the battle and who died actually on the plane on the way back uh, mm -hmm. to Germany. So he never made it to the hospital in Germany. Um, Enrique said he was doing this scene and he did a take where he was crying and stuff and Ridley comes up, real simple direction, he says, uh, and he says, Enrique, heroes don't cry. And Enrique said, all right, right on. Again, this uh, scene is an effort to sort of, in a nutshell, state the warrior ethos and, mm -hmm. and really what this movie is about. Yeah, what makes the ultimate warrior tick without hitting you over the head with it, you know? Um, I like the way this scene finally turned out. I can't take credit for writing it, but uh, Eric Bann is such a great actor, you can give him, like, Scotch Guard ingredients and you make it sound good. <laughs> Potassium nitrate number six... <laughs> <laughs> what? They won't understand. And to me, this is what the movie actually was about, was survival, you know, and looking out for each other. Not because you're my buddy and we hung out and had a couple beers together, because I need you to look out for me and you need to look out, you need to watch my back or else we're all going to die. The use of this Irish... Uh folk music in the film actually originated with one of the men who fought in the battle. His name is Jim Lechner. He was fought and he injured, was injured. And after the book was written and he knew a movie was being made, I ran into him at a speaking engagement I had and he slipped me a, uh, a uh, disc of this Irish folk music. And he said he thought this, you know, to him, for some reason, it just registered very emotionally about the battle and asked me if I would pass it along to, uh, Ridley Scott, and I did, and it, some of it has uh, turned out turned up in the movie. Wow. I was talking to Blackburn the other day. He asked me. Ridley's very collaborative. I mean, he'll take an idea from anybody. He's like, sounds good, mate. Let's try it. <laughs> you know? Which I think is one of the reasons this movie turned out so well. There were so many minds behind it. When I visited Mogadishu in 1997, uh, four years after this battle, the one of the things that I wanted to do was go to the places where the fight took place and it was easy to find because those helicopters are still right where they were right where they crashed uh, because they're obviously two big heavy you know pieces of metal and there's nothing really in Mogadishu capable of moving them from that spot so they're there kind of as uh, memorials almost to to what happened so there's no way in hell there was a sequence here at the end of the film uh, involving this scene and, one, and a scene that didn't make it into the movie where Eversman confronts Garrison and they exchange this sort of meaningful glance and Garrison lights his cigar. And I was invited by Ridley to look at the sequence, uh, I guess this is back in August or September, and um, I watched and he said, what do you think? And I said, well, I think maybe it would be interesting to switch these two scenes because it means a little bit more if you've seen this speech here at the end before he exchanges that look with Garrison. So they switched it, and, and immediately I thought, God, don't listen to me. You're Ridley Scott. You know? But we showed it the next day to the studio heads, and Jerry Bruckheimer was there. And as we left, Jerry said, 
you changed that scene at the end, he said to Ridley. And I liked it better the way it was before. And poor Ridley and Pietro Scalia, the film editor, are trying to defend this decision. And I felt like, oh, I better say something. It was my idea. So I'm here I am arguing with Jerry Bruckheimer about it. And Jerry just looks at me and says, Mark, this is what I'm good at. <laughs> <laughs> so I shut up. Now, a lot of people have asked me, there are 19, it says 19 American soldiers lost their lives. And in fact, during the battle, the truth is 18 American soldiers lost their lives. But uh, Sergeant First Class Matt Ryerson, whose name you see on the screen here, was uh, killed two days after the battle when a mortar round landed on the uh, task force ranger base and, and he was killed. And Jerry just didn't want to leave him out That's because cool. he had been one of the heroes of the battle. And oh, that letter gets me. Uh, Nick, Nick Waldo, writer who plays Gary Gordon. Now this crawl at the end, which I helped to write, initially included a very direct reference to the events of September 11th, uh, indicating that the decision of the United States to withdraw from Somalia was perceived as a weakness around the world and emboldened our enemies and, in effect, led to, you know, the catastrophe on September 11th. And we, we had it in the crawl for the early screenings of the film, and a number of people uh, objected to it or it caused a lot of argument. And we eventually decided to leave it out because we felt that it wasn't a film that was making a political argument. It was a it was a story about soldiers experiencing battle and you know, we should let people draw their own conclusions from it. So mm -hmm. I'm really, you know, pleased with the decision to leave it out. I always thought this would be a, a movie where things would be in the gray area and I, I wanted it to be a movie where people walk out to, you know, and you hear them over here, I'm arguing and couples arguing on the way to their car in the parking lot. Uh, did you think it was like this? Why do you think that? No, it was absolutely not. It was like this. Those soldiers were heroes, you know. Yeah. Oh, it was a major fuck up. What? Fuck up. Were we watching the same movie? <laughs> you know, let them decide. Yeah. Let them argue you, it. You take from it, in a, in a sense, what you bring to mm -hmm. it. And, you know, I've, as I said, I found it amusing to watch... Uh, you know, journalists struggling to decide whether is this propaganda? Is it pro-war? Is it anti-war? You know, they can't quite make it out. And it's it's because it's just true. It's because we don't tell you what to think. You don't know? tell you what to think. How can you not tell us what to think? You know, it's... So I think it's sorry. one of the reasons why, you know, some of the discussion of this movie is spun off in so many strange directions because nobody knows exactly what mm -hmm. the right thing is to think about this yeah. movie, which is one of the reasons why I think people will be, will be watching it in 10 or 20 years. I hope so. And the, the Somalis recently, there was a story on CNN where the Somalis saw a, a bootleg tape of this and they were cheering. They thought it was a movie about how great the Somalis were in the battle. And <laughs> so even they have a different perspective on it. Like, I could see that side of it too, where they'd be watching going, yeah, look at us kick everyone's ass. Yeah. There was some guy in uh, Minnesota who had uh, Somali who had uh, uh, made the news by urging everyone to boycott the movie. And the same day, they, they were showing it in Mogadishu to packed houses of Somalis. <laughs> <laughs> 60 cents a head or whatever. Coke, anyone? I should say I love the soundtrack. Um, when I write, I listen to movie soundtracks, and I must have heard Gladiator a hundred times yeah, when I was Zimmer doing this. Just, yeah. a, just and, a terrific... Uh, Thin Artist. Red Line, yeah, when I heard he was on this, I'm like, oh, God, Thin Red Line is a masterpiece, music. Well, originally, when they had the early cuts of this film, they had uh, some of the Thin Red Line music in it, which mm -hmm. it went so well, I started thinking, oh, my God, you know, too bad we can't use that. Yeah. But actually, what he came up with is uh, works even better. 
And uh, he dedicated it to his mom, and he was, you know... She died, I guess, while he was working on this film. Yeah, right beforehand. You know, he was, I think he was really shaken up by it. I think it's very touching, actually, that he dedicated to his mother. You know, I dedicated the book to the memory of my father, who died 10 years ago, and my mother. You know, I think you dedicate something to someone... Uh, if you dedicate something to your parents, <laughs> it's something pretty close to your heart. Yeah. So it's amazing to me how many people work on films. But there's some 600 people, uh, I think. It's just mind-boggling. Um, and that the, the crew works so hard. I mean, they just, like, how do they do it? They have to get up at, like, 5 a.m. and they go to bed at <laughs> midnight and then they drink for two hours, too. And, and uh, you know, I was complaining about being tired. I And then I saw the crew members glare at me and... I'm like, I better shut up. Well, you look at something like this, all these names rolling by, and you realize uh, that it's just a huge collaborative effort, mm -hmm. you know, making films. And any one person who thinks that he's more important and is really... Wrong. Wrong. I made that mistake. I thought, this script's mine. I am the writer. And uh, by the end of it, I've learned, you know what? It's not yours. You don't own it. It's not your story. I, I developed this emotional attachment to it over two and a half years, and so close to the story and I knew everything inside now and read Mark's book five times and done 26 drafts and finally I just had to let that feeling go and say you know what it's not your story anymore um collaborate let it go you know it's for the be for the good of the movie Ridley doesn't have time you know to care about your feelings and what he's got 90 million dollars hanging over his head we got to make the best movie we can so if a a scene comes from your rockin' driver, cab driver, you use it if it's good. And I wasn't worried about it at all. I figured whatever kind of movie he made, it would be the best two-hour commercial ever made for a book. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> well, I'm, I uh, saw things differently in my head when I was writing it, I think very visually, and when Ridley and I would talk about the script, we would just like communicate almost like dolphins with clicks and whistles with noises. I'm like, he said, so they come down here, nip down there, shoot right right helicopter crashes and i go you mean like and he goes exactly <laughs> uh, so i saw things differently in my head than the way he filmed it but i am every time i see this movie it's not just because i'm involved in it but uh i'm really blown away every time i see it arthur masks asked me to describe how the first helicopter crashed. And I said, well, it kind of spun down, clipped the top of the building, and then crumpled into the alleyway. He said, that's not the way it's going to crash in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you realize that practical locations have a big uh, impact on what you're writing. You know, I said, okay, this happens in the alley. We don't have an alley. You know, we've got this big wide street with these ghost-like buildings that are sort of skeletons on either side. Uh, but uh, deal with it, Ken. Work. Do your work thing. Uh, we had this Czech stunt team who'd go to the Hilton Hotel pool every weekend, and we called them the, the Russian Bears because there was all these, like, steroid-induced or, what you know, big bodybuilders just leaping over each other and speaking in, I don't know what, Czech. Even Avnuvudensvarden. We'd say, oh, the Russian Bears are here. This music at the end here is a, is a lament for the sufferings of Africa. Uh. Well... Thanks for watching the movie. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. <laughs>